This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Boy, oh boy, oh boy. We got a lot to get through today. Um, uh, are you safe out there with just the person, you know, the person you're standing in line with at the Walmart? Are you safe? How about the the person driving next to you in the car next to you? Today, if, it's, if it's Matt Townsend, then no. <laughs> you're not safe. Today we're talking about most strangers are safe. Learn to spot those that are not. Maybe, you know, if... if if human, if the human race is a pretty predictably safe group of people, but then we hear all these crazy stories that, you know, about the extreme weird scenario in some mall somewhere. So who are you safe with? And um, joining us to talk about that will be Wendy L. Patrick, who has written books on it and has uh, spent a career prosecuting unsafe people. And she's got a show on Netflix called Stranger Things. I think I think that's something different. Is it? Yeah, hmm. yeah. That's uh, that's a show for the kids where people walk into th- and through the walls into a different time continuum. Well, you got to be careful about which walls you choose to walk through. Yeah. Hmm. Sounds weird when you put it that way. Uh, so we'll be talking about safety and who are you safe to talk to, to interact with, to deal with. Plus, we'll also be talking about how to prioritize your marriage with a blogger who has a blog called A Prioritized Marriage. We're going to learn how to put marriage first. Ooh, on the nose there. So it's, it's about time we learn to do this. We thought, you know, it's been many years. Huh. And we're doing Did it. Did you never think about that? Oh, I did. I, oh. I kind of talk about it all the time, but it's right. doing it's the hard part. We'll get into that. Oh. You got to do it, you know? Huh. It's not enough to say you're going to do it. Oh, this is true. Now you actually got to do Don't it. Don't be all talk, right? Yeah. Talk, okay. is, talk is cheap. Gotcha. Talk is cheap. So we'll get to all that fun, plus um, some interesting insight about Sasquatch, Bigfoot, Louis Armstrong, or was that... What was his nickname? I don't think it was Sasquatch. It's like, I'll look it up. Yeah, Louis Armstrong. Mm-hmm. Um, plus, if you're you know if you're a guy that's going to rob a store, wouldn't it be easier to just rob the same store twice? You have experience. I mean, once you've done it, right. seems like a no brainer. Satchmo. Yeah, Satchmo's different than Sasquatch. <laughs> Very different, quite honestly. Plus, what's it going to take to win a T-shirt in Florida? Hmm. It's very simple. Just catch a python. Well, okay. So if, you want, if you're looking for a free T-shirt, we'll, we'll tell you how to enter that contest. Everyone loves free T-shirts. Who doesn't want a free T-shirt? It's but amazing. you do have to catch a python. You go to any sporting event, they have T-shirt cannons. Lately, yeah. they have T-shirt gatling guns. Yeah. It is pretty crazy how crazy people get over a free T-shirt. Yeah, but it's free. Yeah, and it's a T-shirt. Depending on where you get it, you could get a free. You get a T-shirt for like three dollars. Yeah, but this all you got to do is catch a python. How hard could that be? Hmm. You know, it's just a python. It's not even on a plane. Just a python. It's just possibly hunting you while you're looking for it. Yeah, it's fun. It's kind of scary. And that's actually sport because everyone's actually playing the game. Where I think maybe sometimes like deer hunting, it's more of a one-sided activity. But who doesn't want a free T-shirt? Again, if you whatever it takes, right? It's free. 
Uh, we'll get to that fun in a minute. But first, let's get to the headlines with Terry South. Terry, what's going on around the rest of the country we should be paying attention to? The National Security Agency has enjoyed relatively broad authority to monitor communications among suspected terrorists and their associates, even while those people happen to be American citizens and even without a warrant. However, the New York Times reports that the NSA is stopping one of its most controversial practices, the collection of Americans' international emails or yeah, international emails and text messages that mention a foreigner under surveillance. The NSA is attempting to adhere to a 2011 ruling by the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court. Of course, technology today continues to rapidly advance. Online communication has changed a lot since 2011. Today, more people are using end-to-end encryption, and email providers are offering more secure ways to communicate, potentially making it harder for the NSA to round up these messages in the first place. In 2014, Google announced it would use, uh, it's called HTTPS, which is a more secure connection, and all of its Gmail uh, products because the NSA was poking around in users' business, as it says here. So in other words, the NSA is, seems like they're saying something nice, but it might just be something that they're using for PR purposes. Go figure. Of the course. worldwide school kid fad of homemade slime is prompting concerns from parents who claim one ingredient, the cleaning product borax, may be causing severe burns to their children with prolonged exposure. Recipes for the putty-like slime, a staple of kids' science websites, tells young makers to mix water, Elmer's glue, and sodium borate, or borax, a naturally occurring mm. mineral that can be used as a stain remover and insecticide, among other things. However, in a few publicized cases, children are reported to have suffered second and even third-degree burns from playing with slime over several months. Google searches for slime have climbed steadily in the past 12 months. Elmer's glue cited a jump in sales in 2016 due in large part to slime mania. Still, uh, the chairman of the American Academy of Pediatrics uh, says borax is considered generally safe. The borax, that really was the best Dr. Seuss book. See, he always goes to movies. I don't know what it is. This is a book. I think they're talking about a cleanser. This is a book. In other stories, <laughs> last, last summer, Ruslan Sloveski entered the imposing Church of All Saints in a city about 1,000 miles east of Moscow. The Russian Orthodox Church holds special meaning for some because it was supposedly built on the site where the last czar of Russia, Nicholas II, was murdered along with his family. But Slogovsky wasn't there to worship or pay tribute to the Russian history. Instead, the blogger wandered through the gilded rooms of the church, his eyes and fingers glued to a smartphone. He was playing Pokemon Go. <laughs> Oops. The blogger posted a video to YouTube showing himself playing the game in the church. Russian officials found the video. He was detained last fall, charged with inciting religious hatred. Ooh, so wow. playing Pokemon Go in a church is inciting religious hatred. Yeah. 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 On Friday, the last day of the trial, prosecutors in Russia requested a sentence of three and a half years in prison. Wow. That's not one of our prisons. That would be one of their prisons. Ooh, which, which is I really heard like dog years. Yeah, it's seven years longer than that. The 22-year-old said in a statement, I may be an idiot, but I'm, I'm no means an extremist. Because mm. he's basically labeled a religious extremist and needs to be put away. Boy. For playing Pokemon Go in a church. That's what you get. As he said, he's an idiot. But Don't disrespect the church, yo. Also, teen girls in Finland are going to, going as it says here, buck wild for the, sporting, uh, the sport of hobby horsing. Really? So you sit on a hobby horse? You got a hobby horse, which is the, the the fabric horse head on a stick. Yeah. And you ride it around like a horse. 
but they're 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 being very creative. They're oh wow! Using, you know all their own sort of products as they create their own and make their own. The the the, the market for such things is is driving up there. And plus, uh, there's professional rodeos. You could be a hobby horse rodeo. You know, it says some ten thousand fins, mostly between the ages of ten and eighteen, have uh, ponied up to the sport, <laughs> where <laughs> participants compete in traditional equestrian events like dressage and show jumping with toys instead of real animals. Wow! They have parades through the streets. Hobby horses. Hobby. It's a big deal in Finland. Hobby horse. Uh, when, when you don't have your own horse, you can just go get a hobby horse. Um, Jeff was talking about the Lorax. Yes. Not the Borax. Oh, I thought it was the Borax. Yeah, no, that's different. That's just the cleanser. I think that was the sequel, the Borax. Yeah, no, I think, I think it was just the cool. Lorax meets the Borax. Um, you always think in movies. I don't know if you know that, which is actually awesome because this Friday you're going to have your own movie show. Yes, except uh, I do want to point out that I, I mentioned a book, although it was turned into a movie now that you bring it up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Um, you, you know, I was just pitching your show and then you had to go there. You can pitch it again. I was setting it up for you. We'll take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk about how to spot... The strangers you can trust versus those that are just good people. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Strangers often turn into friends, coworkers, or even life partners with just a little time. We are motivated to view others positively because of this potential for building productive relationships. Yet sensing danger should curtail your initial level of courtesy. This risk of enhance, uh, is enhanced by the reality that in most cases, we are unable to spot dangerous people merely by looking at them. Actions speak louder than words, and appearances can be deceiving. So here to help us separate the harmful from the harmless is Wendy Patrick, uh, who is a career prosecutor in San Diego. She also was named the Ronald M. George Public Lawyer of the Year and recognized by her peers as one of the top 10 criminal attorneys in San Diego by the San Diego Daily Transcript. Wendy, thank you so much for your insight and being oh, here today. Sure thing. Thanks for having me. You bet. Talk to us about it. You you wrote a wonderful article about how most strangers are safe, and yet we've got to learn really how to spot those who aren't. How how first of all, how did you get into this this area? Why why would you be writing about how we how we know who to trust, how we know who not to trust? Well, I'll tell you, I've spent the last 23 years prosecuting the exceptions to the harmless stranger rule. And in so many cases over the years, what we see is it's precisely because of social norms and the reality that most people are good that we tend to extend the benefit of the doubt to those who are not. Yeah. So years ago, I thought I would do you know some, in, some supplemental research to corroborate the anecdotal evidence I already had over the decades of prosecuting these cases to really show people, you know, there are certain red flags that you can look at uh, in the grand scheme of things when you look at all the interactions you have to decide whether or not every stranger you meet is deserving of the trust that we extend to these people. So true. Statistically, people are safe, right? So when you look at the numbers, overall, the people around us are relatively safe. So what are the red flags that we should be paying right. attention to? 
And, you know, it's, it's a great question because I just want to start with as, as many years as I've had this job, people say, aren't you jaded? Aren't you skeptical? Aren't you paranoid? What I've learned in, in being a prosecutor for all these years is that most people are good and most strangers are safe. So let me talk about a couple of exceptions to the rule red flags wise, which is what, what, I, what I look at. Um, one of the things we worry about is somebody that's boundary probing in public. In other words, somebody asking for more information than they're entitled to. Hmm. We live in a day and age where it's almost inconceivable, especially in a crowded place, that somebody would need to borrow your phone. Think about what you've got on your phone nowadays. You've got the pictures of your loved ones, your kids, your financial information. There are just too many other safe options in most public areas nowadays than a stranger wanting to take your phone and make a call. Yet I can't tell you how many cases I've seen, both in my own practice and in research, that strangers are willing to share their most intimate details with somebody they've never seen before. Mm. I would say it's also a red flag when you have an able-bodied stranger wanting you, particularly if you're a smaller, um, petite woman, somebody with kids, wanting to ask you for help where there are so many public options available, information desk, security guard, uh, you know, transit officers on the trolley, the train, the bus stop. We look at these things as red flags because it's an unnecessary request. Now, I, I get it. People sometimes are helpless. They would rather ask a fellow passenger or stranger than go to law enforcement, than go to security. But it's just something that should make your antenna rise when you do have these kinds of requests from strangers. Because as I said at the beginning, not all strangers are safe. The exceptions to that rule have kept me and my colleagues in business for 23 <laughs> years. So yeah. and I'm sure I'm, I'm not going to be out of a job anytime soon. And, and I guess, boy, I didn't think of that. But, but just the simply, they're trying to endear you and get you helping them. And, and I guess that takes your takes your eye off your personal belongings, but it also somehow makes you feel an, an affinity for them because you are serving them. It's true. And let me pick up on your use of the word affinity. You know, one of my, my absolute um, heroes in the threat assessment world is Gavin DeBecker. And in his national bestseller, The Gift of Fear, he talks about the concept of force teaming, that you use the word affinity. That's what this is about. For example, you've got two people taking a bus and, you know, the bus breaks down and one stranger says to the other, oh, great, how are we going to get home? That's an example of force teaming. There, you shouldn't automatically be on a team with somebody simply because you find yourself in the same predicament. Now, sometimes force teaming is fine. Sometimes it's great. You know, um, there's safety in numbers, but you just don't know the safe, you know, who is and isn't safe in that kind of a scenario. And you shouldn't be obligated to all of a sudden be bonded with other people uh, whether or not they're safe. So many times they are, most of the time they are, but I have seen terrible things happen when somebody automatically says, okay, you and I now are a team. I don't know you. I've never seen you before. It's the middle of the night. It's a dark alley. That's not necessarily the best course of action when you have alternatives. Yeah, absolutely. And I guess, too, if they're insisting it, right? So if they insist upon it, you, you talk about that's a major watch out. Absolutely. You know, there's a difference between offering assistance, and we all love that. I mean, when somebody, you know, says they're going to put my bag into the overhead compartment on an airplane, I say, oh, thank you. God bless you. (laughs) But if somebody were to insist on carrying my bags to my car or up to my condo or something that would require me to grant them access to my personal space, that's different, particularly when we've said no. I would always say be wary of any stranger's uh, insistence when they start their sentence with, oh, come on, I insist. That's a problem. Uh, It's kind of like 
somebody trying to almost grab your bags out of your hand and insist on carrying them to your car when you exit a grocery store. I've seen that happen, and I've seen very negative outcomes come from that degree of forced insistence. Do we Are we just too naive? Are we just too accepting of the fact that there isn't anybody out there to hurt us? And it, would, we, would we have a better uh, shot at life by assuming somebody does want to? And we don't want to turn people negative, but we also don't want to be naive. It's not paranoia. It's preparedness. There is absolutely no reason to believe all strangers are dangerous because the statistics don't bear that out, nor does common sense or or the practicalities of human life. But it's just looking for these out-of-the-ordinary boundary-probing behaviors that should always raise red flags because most safe strangers do not desire to penetrate your personal boundaries. Social norms are against it. So it is the rare case that somebody insists on, for example, carrying a stranger's bags up to her apartment, out to her car. Those are the exceptions to the rule, and those are the instances where preparedness should take over, and a strong, firm, loud no should be all that that stranger needs to decide you are not worth it, if they, if they in fact, do have nefarious goals in mind. Um, most common decency and, and requests from safe strangers do not raise red flags because they are in line with social norms, uh, helping put somebody's bag up into the overhead container in, in an airplane. Those kinds of things are expected. They're safe. They're social. And those are not the kind of things that should raise red flags. It's mm. the exceptions to those rules that we worry about. And in your book, Red Flags, um, you, you do talk about the fact that the you call it the open nook. I guess it's. I mean, oh, yeah. talk about that because I mean, we some people we just are an open book, and uh, <laughs> and it creates problems. You, you you need to you need to keep some of your personal stuff quiet. Yes. TMI, as my college students would say, too yeah, much information. Exactly. You know, it used to be the case, uh, and we we may be too young to remember this, but the, the strangers on the train phenomena was something that was very real. And this was the case where before the age of social media, people opened up to those that they expected, never expected to see again. Um, and the strangers on the train stood for the proposition that many people felt comfortable discussing some of their deepest life details on a train um, because they knew they'd never see the person again. And there was no way to connect with them online. And I use that example because nowadays, if you dared reveal too much information to a stranger in that setting, you would expect to be tagged, friend, and followed. Yeah. <laughs> Almost before your conversation was over, there'd be a selfie you took together, posted on Instagram, and it just wouldn't be, you wouldn't have the same degree of safety or comfort opening up to that extent. That's why I call it the open nook. We don't even read books anymore. But we live in a digital age where things go viral so quickly that it always is a good idea to to really think through how much personal information you feel comfortable revealing to somebody you've never met before. Because you just never know. You cannot tell by looking whether or not somebody is safe or whether their thinking and their degree of transparency is far greater than you would be willing to share. Mm. Well, and, and too about our kids as well, right? I mean, because we, we could so easily on Facebook expose our children, their names, so much information without even paying attention. That's right. And, you know, I, I always want to encourage your listeners to make sure you understand how the Facebook privacy settings work and you understand how easy it is for friends of friends of friends to be able to see the information that you post. A misunderstanding of the Facebook privacy settings has led to so many problems when people don't understand 
the extent to which people so far removed in the friendship network will have access to the information they post. They wouldn't post as many personal details about their children, many of them wouldn't, if they understood that. So the good thing about sites like Facebook and even Twitter and LinkedIn and all of the rest, they do post their privacy settings. So with a little bit of reading, maybe a lot of reading, at least you're able to understand the extent to which you're sharing information before you do so. Mm. What do we do if somebody has got their foot in the door, if they, if they, you know, if they are in a position with us where they're gathering more information, uh, maybe even, you know, understanding or, or getting into or past our boundaries, what, what do we do to get out? Yeah, the, the, you know, the foot in the door should lead to the door in the face sometimes. See, you know, people know they're pushing their luck in many instances, but we are just too conditioned to mind our manners that sometimes we allow them to continue to have access. It is too easy to unfriend, to have somebody, you know, unfollow. There's all of these ways to shut down those social media channels that, and many people do it. And thankfully, many of the sites don't provide a a notification to those that have been unfollowed, unfriended, unlinked. You know, many people are afraid of retaliation, but most sites don't let anybody know. It's just a good way to establish, or I should say reestablish, the boundary you should have put up stronger at the beginning to make sure that only those with whom you, you choose to share information can see it. Boy, we really are. It is. We go for nice and kind of the old historic, you know, be nice, except this may be somebody that's that's trying to do harm. It's true because some predators prey on politeness. You know, everybody knows that everybody wants to be nice, but it's making sure that you can be very nice, very polite, but your your boundaries should always remain and your personal life should always remain personal because even a little bit of information may be too, may be too much given all of the ways that somebody with nefarious motives can then follow up and gain access to your private information. That's what you want to protect. Absolutely. Well, Wendy, we appreciate you and uh, highly recommend the book Red Flags, How to Spot Frenemies, Underminers, and Toxic People in Your Life. I mean, really, folks, it is about uh, maybe going on the going on the on the offense on this. Start looking. Start trying to see it. Don't just assume everyone's bad, but start knowing what the signs are for those that are that are trying to cross the boundaries and get too much from you. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. We'll be right back. to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here. Hey, it's time for empty news, my friends. This is the news that uh, you may not have even known you needed to know. But it's the news that we're going to give you anyway. Empty, not because it has nothing in it, but because it's Matt Townsend news. It's the one that, uh, you know, these are the stories you can take home to mom. Share with the friends at dinner. The empty news team. First on the scene. Fifth on facts. I don't know why I laugh every time at that. That little apple bite just gets me. First on the new, first on the scene, though, always. Fifth on the facts. Uh, in Vermont, police say he robbed the same store twice in a week. But the second time, they caught up with him. Police say Ryan Mulligan, 25, robbed a convenience store Monday evening with a knife. They say he ran off with the cash. 
When police caught up with him, they say Mulligan had a wad of money in his front pocket, and he was arrested later and admitted robbing the store. They say he also admitted to robbing the same store about a week earlier. Well, with a name like Mulligan, you know nothing's going to come. Nothing good is going to come of that. Mulligan, you know it's interesting too because I wonder if he just would have been fine if he just robbed it once. Maybe we don't rob the same store twice. Maybe that's the rule. Rob me once, shame on you. Rob me twice, shame on me. With a wad of cash in my pocket. Yeah. I love grandma's old wives, uh, old wise statements. Um, Also, a wonderful story about a hunt in Florida. They tried hiring professionals. It didn't bring them any luck. They tried training people to compete in a big roundup. They even brought in tribesmen from India. Now Florida wildlife officials who want to rid the state of invasive snakes are trying something even more offbeat. Prizes for anyone in the public who picks up a python. I mean, picks it up and brings it in. The Florida Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission announced Monday that it's launching a python pickup program. Triple P, we call it, in which anybody who captures a python in the wild can simply submit a photo of the snake he or she caught in order to win. Each amateur snake catcher gets a python pickup T-shirt and is entered into a drawing for prizes that include snake handling gear, custom engraved thermoses, storage containers, GoPro cameras, and a high-end backpack. What would it take for you to pick up a snake and take it in? I'd never do it. Not for any amount of money or no. any number of T-shirts? No, snakes are gross. Really? Yeah, not pick them wow. up. I mean, if I had to pick one up, I would pick one up. But I would not I would not intentionally compete in this activity. Hmm. I'm not going to go snake wrangling for a T-shirt. Don't get me wrong, I love a good T-shirt. And who doesn't? You love a good wrangling, too. <laughs> I totally do. I love a good wrangling. By the way, next month's prize won't just be T-shirts. It includes a $100 gas card. But you can can see some people in Florida might be thinking, hey, not only do I get to get some clothes to wear, but I also get free gas. I could dominate this thing. See, they figured out a good formula. Now, only if United Airlines had upped the ante, then they would have had some takers on that offer. So true. It's so true. Maybe they ought to add a a little Python wrangling. To United Airlines. That's what they should have done. They should have released a python and saying, now who wants to get off the plane? (laughs) You would have cleared the place. Cleared it. Okay. So, in fact, it reminds me of all of these snake movies we've been hearing, right? Mm, Yeah. What was the last one? We Was it snakes in a tent? I don't remember. No, 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 no. Uh, This one was actually, I've got it right here. It's snakes in a car. I have had it with these mother-loving snakes in this monkey-fighting car. Take that, snake. Now your history. Wow. I think the next one is actually going to be called Snakes in the Oval Office. Really? Why? I'm just I, That's just what I heard. Have you heard that? I read There's it. a snake problem there? Yeah. You know, a lot of snakes in Florida, a lot of snake stories. So this one, I'm pretty sure, snake in a car was out of Florida. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's scary. I don't like snakes. I'd rather, I prefer Sasquatch. 
Satchmo? No, Sasquatch. Oh, I see. Uh, I prefer Satchmo. Police in Ohio are on the lookout for Bigfoot after a gift shop owner reported the statues of the hairy creature vanished from her store. What? Arlene Fitzer says the three hand-painted concrete statues disappeared from Farmer Dave's gift shop between Monday evening and Tuesday morning. Fitzer suspects say that they were stolen. Or she suspects, sorry, that they were stolen, but says that uh, they, it would have been difficult to lift and hide. These things are really heavy. The statues are about three and a half feet tall. Uh, one is about two and, a, two and a quarter feet tall. And, you know, the third one's just a little baby Bigfoot. But they're heavy. They're heavy things. They range in value from 55 to $155. So please keep your eye out for Bigfoot on the lamb. I mean, nothing worse than losing your Sasquatch. Well, losing my Satchmo album Why is pretty bad. Why do you keep bad. going to Satchmo? Who doesn't love some Louis Armstrong? I love him to death, but it has nothing to do with the story. Give me a kiss to build a dream out in my imagination. We're five upon that kiss. Da, da, da. You done? Not a fan, huh? I'm a total. I'm a total fan. I'm a total fan of Louis Armstrong. Well, I just played a clip of him right there. Uh, I think not. That was not a clip. That was <sighs> sad. In a good way. Uh, ooh, sorry, everybody. Sorry. Sorry. Forgot. Forgot. Sorry. Sorry. Forgot. You love Jeff's. No, they love Satchmo. I love Satchmo. Which is Satchmo. exactly what we gave them. I, I think you got Satchno right there. All right, then. I guess we'll have to end it on that. We'll take a break. When we come back, we're going to be talking about how to put your marriage first, how to make a date night work with a blogger on a a website called A Prioritized Marriage. Stick with us. This is The Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. You know, we should always strive to make our marriage a top priority no matter what life brings. Constant communication, intentional quality time, laughter to keep us focused on building our relationship with each other. Marriage can be the most important relationship in your life and needs constant care and attention. Here to share with us some of her ideas and experiences is Amberly Lambertson, co-author of the uh, the blog PrioritizedMarriage.com. Amberly, thank you for being with us today. Thanks for having me, Matt. This is fun. So you you have a background, a, a degree in family studies, and you're now working to get your certification as a family life educator. Talk to us. How did you get uh, the idea to start a blog on marriage? Uh, you know, when I first got married, um, I just started kind of like everyone else. I started like a blog just to share the fun things that my husband and I were up to. Um, and then I just started to have a real passion for uh, date night and making my marriage a priority and everything like that. And so it kind of turned into just sharing my experiences with other people. And um, as I started getting a degree in family studies, sharing the things that I was learning through my education and um, sharing that passion with other couples and hoping they would feel the same way as I did. That's pretty cool. Now, are you doing it? Do you do the blog with your with your husband or who, who's helping you on the blog? 
So the blog is mostly me. She's done a few posts on there as well, but it's mostly me um, just sharing from my personal experiences. That's <laughs> Of good. course, he, he agrees to be part of my stories that yeah, I share. But. Part of your experiment. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, the reality is it's a pretty – I think it's a pretty important idea myself. I love marriage and relationships. Um, one of the things I know you, you talk a lot about is your, are your date nights. And I, I didn't know this, but um, this is – this month, I guess, is uh, of May is Date Your Mate Month. And yes, so, um, so talk about that. Yeah. So it's Date Your Mate Month. and. Um, and I just found out about this also a couple a couple years ago. I don't remember how I found out about it, but I thought that's really fun. Like it's become one of my favorite holidays, and it just gives me another opportunity. Obviously, I try to make my marriage a priority every day and find some way to be intentional about that. But it just gives me another opportunity to really focus on that. And so this month, I'm trying to encourage couples to not only make date night a priority, like a regular date night, whether that's weekly or monthly going out together, whatever works for them, but also to just like date each other on a daily basis. Um, like when you were, I don't know, when I was dating my spouse um, back, uh, let's see, we've been married almost six years now. So when we were dating, we were always texting each other. We were constantly sending each other things like, oh, I'm thinking about you, um, making that relationship, like trying to be um I don't know. How do I want to put it? Trying to be more intentional with just making each other feel important in each other's lives and um, really pursuing each other, I guess, is the way I would say. So that's kind of my what I'm trying to encourage couples to do this month is pursue each other on a daily basis, not just go on dates every once in a while, but make it a daily intentional thing. So because I mean, we do, we used to pursue each other like crazy and we couldn't uh-huh. get through, you know, a two hour period without somehow contacting each other. Then you get married, you start having kids, life settles down, and and the pursuit stops. But you're saying keep that fire alive. Yeah, for sure. And not just once you've got kids and you've got finances to worry about and all those other adult responsibilities. I think sometimes your relationship can become very business partnery, I guess I yeah. would say. And just trying to remember that you started as it started as a romantic relationship, and it still is a romantic relationship, and keeping that alive for the rest of your marriage. Is it um, – what, what, when you get feedback from your, your readers um, at uh, PrioritizeMarriage.com, what – are they – I mean, I, I assume that a lot of them are like, yeah, you know, this – you make it sound so easy, but it's a lot harder mm-hmm. than that, Amberly. Do, do you sense a lot of people that are distressed or – or or what are you hearing on your blog? Yeah, that's exactly the kind of thing I hear. People, I'll talk to people about it on my blog, through emails, on social media, and even just in my everyday life. And they, they're like, oh, yeah, that's an awesome goal to have, but it's really hard to do. You know, we've got kids, either young kids that take up a lot of time. We've got jobs. We're in school. Um, we have older kids, and we're running back and forth from games and all that kind of stuff. So it is hard, and I think people feel like, it's just kind of overwhelming to try and think about making your marriage a priority sounds like a lot of effort. But I, like from my personal experience, I know that if you, it is effort, but it's effort that's worth it. 
Oh, it totally is. And what what do you, for example, your date nights? How do you how do you mix up your dates? Um, I mean, you, you, one of the goals you're doing right now is kind of the pursue each other every day, make it intentional. But uh, what are some other ways that you've found just on date nights or weekly activities to keep the fire alive? Yeah. So <clears throat> date night, we have a goal right now. We have two little kids. Um, two and under. <laughs> so we have a two month or a two year old and an eight month old. And so going out on a date, we have to, we hire a babysitter if we want to get out without them and it can kind of be really expensive and time consuming. And a lot of times one of them will get sick or they're teething and that kind of gets in the way. So we, we shoot for one out of the house kid free date night a month. If we can get more than that, then that's awesome. And then we just try to do fun things at home or we go out together as a family Um Let's see, what did we do last week? So last week we got milkshakes just after the kids had gone to bed, and we'll get milkshakes and watch, like, a Netflix show or play a game or just sit and talk. Um, we like One of my new favorite things to do early in our relationship, we used to go on an, a late-night walk every single night. We'd go out after 10, and obviously that doesn't really work because we have kids at home. So um, about a month ago we climbed out our bedroom window and sat on the roof and drank hot chocolate and just talked. And it was like 10.30 at night. We were by ourselves, but we had the monitors in the house so we could, you know, hear the kids. So that's we just try to find those little things that we can do together every day. Sometimes it's like an hour, two hours. Other times it's just 15 minutes of time that we're focusing on each other in their relationship. That's crazy. That's great. It's all fun and games till you slide off the roof. But um, yeah. <laughs> but how fun. I mean, I could actually see doing that. That would be fun. You could even watch the sunset or whatever. You wrote one of your blogs um, in April, middle of April, Why I Miss Our Time in the Newborn Intensive Care Unit. Yeah. Talk <laughs> about that. That's fascinating. Yeah. So I think the our, our eight-month-old, she was born eight weeks early, eight weeks premature, and we had her in August, so obviously that came with his time in the NICU. And we had a toddler at home. He was 16 months old at the time. Um, and it was a struggle. Having a baby in the NICU alone is really emotional. Yeah. You cry every single day. Yeah. And it takes up a lot of your time, and your focus is on that little one and then obviously on our little one at home. Um, and I, I just think a lot about it that in that time, like, it was a struggle, but it was so easy to find those things that were the most important. So um, taking the time each day to be with our toddler, so to try and keep his routine on track and spending time with our daughter at the NICU um, was important. But then also we worked, we worked really hard. We had to work really hard to find time for each other because in the midst of all that chaos, it would have been really easy to just focus on, this is the stress, this is what we have to do to get through the day. But um I really didn't want, it was only three weeks time, but I really didn't want our, our marriage to be on the back, completely on the back burner for about three weeks time. Um, so I just tried to do little things to, um, to really focus on our marriage. So one of the things I would do is I spent the mornings with my toddler and then I would take him to one of our family members houses and I'd spend the afternoon at the hospital with my daughter. Um, so on our on my way from dropping him off to the hospital, I would take my husband a lunch, and it was usually I just make him a sandwich really quick, and I take it to him. It took me an extra fifteen minutes, but it was worth it. I got to see him for a couple minutes, and let, it was just a gesture of love. Um, and then, obviously, he wanted to spend time with our daughter in the NICU after um, work, and so I try not to take away from his time with her, but we would always step out of her. Um, 
her room and go across the hall to the parents' uh, little area or go back to our room and we'd just eat dinner together. And it'd be just half an hour and we'd eat dinner together. Hmm. And then, um, believe it or not, we still went on date night while we were in the NICU. So we had the best babysitters with those nurses. So we yeah. we we went to dinner one night. Um, another week, we ordered pizza to the hospital and just watched a movie in our room. So, But I just think back on that time and how easy it was that, like, work wasn't getting in the way because they understood that our family was the most important priority. And it was easy to just say no to all those other responsibilities. And that's, I think that's not always the easiest to do when people see work and church responsibilities and neighborhood, you know, things they've got to do that um, – are important to them that sometimes it's easy to let those things get in the way. But that's great, and, that and, and and a struggle that you didn't ask for that you you know you was kind of just thrust upon you and with your baby, and yet you turned it into something that that actually fed. It sounds like all of the relationships, and it's interesting too how a tragedy or a, or a struggle in our lives can allow us to reprioritize everything and put our most important things first. Yeah, exactly. And those struggles can either make or break us. And you you can decide whether you're going to let them take over and, you know, run the show or whether you're going to take it and make it a positive experience Absolutely. for you and your marriage and your family. Yeah, you. Um, it's a great lesson there. You also have a wonderful pod or a blog uh, um, entry about how not every date night needs to be something exciting and adventurous. You could just even, you know, have a cleaning party together. Yes, we do that often. We turn on 90s pop music and we clean our house. <laughs> it's it's not the most glamorous, but it's, it's rewarding. I feel so much better when I have a clean house and it's just doing something together. So it doesn't have to be, you know, big expensive dinner out and dress up and and hours out on the town. It can just be something fun at home. And like I said, we'll, we'll sit and drink hot chocolate on the roof or we make skillet cookies and just sit and talk or just something simple, um, just making that intentional time together. Well, like, I mean, when the house is a little messy and it's causing tension anyway, what's it might be really good to get on the same page and spend the next hour totally cleaning the house. How cool... Could that be if at the very end when we're clean, we also have the satisfaction of knowing we did it together and now let's go enjoy our life? Exactly. And my husband will tell you that I am a much happier person when my house is clean. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I think yeah. I think my wife is too. It's it's kind of a sad thing. But um, it's <laughs> such an important thing. Well, man, we appreciate all of this, Amber. This is great insight. And you have an ebook on your site as well. Do they just go to a prioritizedmarriage.com and they can find it there? Yeah, you can find it there, or um, it, there's a way to get to it on that, um, just on the main page. There's a shop page, or you can just type in a prioritizedmarriage.com um, backslash ebook, and that'll take you right to the page for that ebook. Good so. stuff. Well, uh, Amberly, thank you so much for your time and your insight. Wonderful, uh, wonderful ideas, folks. Remember, even the tragedies, or the, not the tragedies, but the difficult times of our lives that uh, maybe you weren't expected could also be a time to reprioritize family as well as the great lesson of maybe you do a little date night that clean. Just get a little cleaning done. Get a little yard work done. Get working together on uh, – you know, on your flowers or your garden, what have you. We will take a break, my friends. When we come back, we're just going to – oh, that's right. We, we're not going to be able to take a break. So what we're going to do is instead um, get to a little bit more of the empty news. 
And uh, we're going to have, uh, I think, McKenna come in. And McKenna's going to come in and do a little bit of a, we call it McKenna, a, a mind bender, we call it. McKenna Bass will be with us in a few minutes. Um, but I wanted to tell you this story. So we've talked about the mere fact that um, uh, Florida's got a, a Python problem, right? But a Florida man used his neighbor's Wi-Fi to make bomb threats. If if you uh, if you need think about it, if, if you need to make a bomb threat and you're going to uh, and you're going to like set yourself up for problems, I guess you borrow your neighbor's Wi-Fi to do it. Authorities have arrested a Florida man accused of using his neighbor's Wi-Fi to send bomb threats on Twitter. Investigators said Terrence Upham, 43, parked outside of his neighbor's house Sunday and then connected to a man's Wi-Fi. The network was not password protected. The news station reported deputies report that Upham then tweeted bomb threats that targeted a Pasco County government building, among other locations. In a series of profanity-laden posts, no explosives were found, and the deputies uh, warned people to protect their Wi-Fi networks. Yeah, you got to – you really have to – we've talked about this on the show a bunch. You got to protect your Wi-Fi. That's just rude. Why couldn't he have gone to McDonald's like all the rest of us? Yeah, that's an you always see point. people at McDonald's that have no food. Yeah. They just have their or laptop. Starbucks. They like have their whole business set up there at McDonald's. Well, he probably didn't want the video camera that mm. would be accompanied at a McDonald's or a public place like that. He didn't need witnesses. But anyway, just know they caught him. And not only did they catch him, but now everybody knows you need to tighten up your Wi-Fi. But if you don't have password protection on your Wi-Fi, folks, it's probably time you do that. Now in studio, McKenna Bouse joins us. Bouse in the house, we call it. She's a. We like uh, to infer she's a mind bender. She can take your brain, bring us some of the latest and greatest research, and and make your brain bend into new ways of thinking. Is that what your goal, McKenna? That is the goal indeed. So, uh, what are you? How are you going to bend our minds today? So. What I'm talking about today is this sort of new approach to helping people get access uh, to in vitro fertilization and just fertility treatments in general. Because they're expensive. They're expensive and just sort of some of the ethics behind the way that whole industry is working right now. Ooh. Okay. Because I I mean I know people that have spent $10,000, $15,000 trying to have a baby – and not to have any success. I've had others that spent ten or fifteen thousand dollars, and the next thing they, they know, they have triplets. Yeah, so there can be huge payoffs. Yeah. And I mean, for a family, you know, parents or you know, potential parents who really want to have a kid, that's something that, understandably, you can see why it'd be very hard to put even you know a price on it because right. it's something so so valuable yeah. to to individuals. Um, but again, it is just this enormous amount of money um, that you know makes it accessible only to some. There's a lot of people who just simply can't afford it, and it's not an option. Right. Um, though there are even some you know places here in the U.S. that are doing this whole thing where it's like, okay, if you pay an even greater amount of money up front, you know, then if it doesn't work, we refund it. But if it does work, you still pay that. Oh, higher wow. amount. And so there's sort of this like lottery gamble kind of thing going on there. Like, interesting. Well, if it doesn't work, I don't lose all my money, but I'm also out a lot more huh. should it work. And kind so of like a money back guarantee. Yeah, on a your money back guarantee on your in vitro, um, which is interesting. Mm-hmm. It still, again, has that really high price tag. So 
people who still don't have a lot of money to begin with, right. it's still inaccessible. Um, but there is this particular doctor in um, New York City. He is really, really famous. Um, uh, his name is Dr. Uh, John Jong, and he is doing this whole thing um, sort of to help promote, he says, National Infertility Awareness Week, um, where he is holding a lottery to give away 30 in vitro fertilization treatments. And so that's wow. roughly a million dollars. So he's going to give it away. Mm-hmm. And you just got to get in the lotto. Yeah. And so women aged 43 and under are eligible. And it doesn't cover the drugs that are involved. And that's still a, a really, lot, I'm sure. really yeah. expensive. Um, and so, again, not accessible to everybody still, but more accessible. Yeah. Um, but it just sort of raises that whole question again of like we're having to do lotteries in order for people to be able to have children. Interesting, yeah. Um, and what you makes you wonder like what what responsibilities should insurance companies have? Exactly. To make this more affordable or doctors or hospitals or Exactly. And with this particular um, doctor, you know, it's sort of this big social media thing and people, they have to like submit their names and they can't do it sort of privately because they're going to announce on a Facebook live thing like, you know, hey, these are the people who've won. And so it's if you want to get in, you know, you can't do it quietly. And so it's also sort of this like question of like, well, it's really good that, you know, there are people getting access to this who might not be able to get it otherwise, but also – you have yeah. to do it publicly and it's sort of this like business yeah. promoting thing. And it's interesting because he will a lot of times have people come from out of the country to be treated by him. And so he recommends them to real estate agents and then huh. real estate agents will also recommend customers so to it's him. Like this whole marketing this thing. This whole market. That's crazy. But I mean, I guess, too, you want a baby. So you'll do what you can. Yeah. So where is that line? Yeah, where's When's the line okay? between like ethics and marketing? Exactly. <laughs> He just bent our minds there. Thanks, McKenna Baus, helping us see the world a little bit differently. We'll take a break. We'll be back. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the program. Dr. Matt here, your life coach, your guide on the side. This is the show where we give you the latest, greatest research, the information you need to, to live healthier, happier lives you know, it's one thing to just, you know, be here. It's another to be effectively living the life you want to live. This is the show where we try to give you uh, some some of the latest research. Interesting uh, guest today. We're going to be talking about your political beliefs, why they actually may cause a little fighting, why you may choose to, you know, protect yourself, turn into that fight or flight, uh, you know, mode when you are dealing with political issues. It's just politics, for heaven's sakes. But no, it's so much more than that. We will get into that about your political identity. It becomes part of who you are. And we'll have a researcher from USC to walk us through some of his uh, latest and greatest research. By the way, happy baby day. It is so cute when I walk in from the parking lot and I look into my coworkers' cars and 
There's just little baby seats in the back. Little car carriers. That's a big boy seat, by the way. Sorry, big. Don't let anyone big, hear you huge say that. Toddler boy seats. There you go. And you probably have one in your car we right did, now, right? We did, except we handed it off to grandma, the other grandma, today. Yes, last night. So, Ooh. no more car seat in our car. And honestly, there's a there's an emptiness in the house. Now, who are you going to spoil? You know what's funny? Um, nobody. Hmm. The entire spirit of the house is. It just changes when the baby, the grandbaby's gone. All of my my kids aren't as nice. They just sit there on their technology. And together we ignore each other all evening long while we watch an NBA playoff game. It's the American way. The American way. I thought that would extend into the workplace. That, you know, you would want to fill that void with your coworkers Mm. and just say, you know what? Mm. Here's a piece of candy. Nah. No. Nope. Not interested in that. Unless you guys got candy. Do you guys have candy? No. The student who left their candy here they must either have, took it or yeah, they're probably away. They probably thrown out. Darn it. It is baby day. That's the smiley, squishy faces are the perfect reason to put baby day on the map. It's difficult to pinpoint where this day originated. One can easily speculate. You know, anyone that's ever yearned for, had, or known a baby could list dozens of reasons why babies are special. Babies are cute. Today's the day we celebrate their cuteness. Boy, now I miss my grandbaby. I'll be fine. It's really for I'll any. See her, I'll see her again. It's really for anybody that uh, has ever been a baby. Yeah. So today's your day. But some people have never been a baby. Oh, yeah. I think everybody's been a baby, and some have never grown out of it. Like the guy driving in front of me today, who almost got cut off. Turned into a big fat baby. Wow. Using little hand baby gestures and bad baby language. I was directly behind somebody that got into an accident over the weekend. Oh. And they left. We were on the same cul-de-sac in my neighborhood. We were backing out at the same time. I decided to let him go in front of me. And that could have been you. And it could have been us. And my wife probably would have had to go to the hospital and I probably would have been a dad for the third time. Wow, I'm glad you didn't. I'm glad you just drive the way you do, very conservatively. You dodged a bullet. Was it a Dodge bullet? No. Was it a Dodge Dart? I think it was a Prius. Ah, of course it was. It's always a Prius. Uh, We'll get to all that fun straight ahead, plus other headlines, information you may need to know about. We are still looking for a new, uh, a couple of um, contributors to the show. So we'll be talking about that sometime in the day today. I, I was told we were only looking for one. Well, so we're gonna we're, we're waiting to see how this uh, show. We're, we're launching a new show on Friday at the, my the last hour of the Matt Townsend show is going to be a movie show. We're going to see how that goes because if that doesn't go well, then we'll probably need two or three different contributors. <laughs> They're booing because I I don't think. You should be showing a lack of faith. I'm not showing a lack of faith. I'm just showing proactivity. Hmm. Isn't that the product that's piped or that's uh, you know endorsed by all the celebrities? No, that's I think proactive. Oh, okay, yeah, proactivity. But first, before all of these other topics, let's get to the headlines with Terry South. Find out what uh, we should be focusing on around the rest of the country. Terry, what's up? 
Hollywood writers and major entertainment studios reached a tentative deal late Monday night halting a strike that would have begun Tuesday, threatening immediate halt to late-night TV shows, soap operas, and more gradual problems for films and scripted TV shows down the line. The 9,000-member Writers Guild of America and Alliance of Motion Pictures Television producers evidently found common ground in the last minute after a long week of tense negotiating. The agreement specifically dealt with an increase in television residuals, guide the Guild's health insurance plan, and provisions for shorter television seasons. Ooh. As of last... Uh, is that going to happen? Are the shorter seasons happening? Or did uh, they negotiate I, those away? I certainly hope so. These shows that need to squeeze in 23 episodes. Yeah. So they have about 10 episodes during the season, which are pointless. They're just sort of, hey, we did something. That's true, huh? And so if you really, like, squish down to, like, they're talking about getting it from 23, which is kind of the average typical season, down to, say, 10. You get it right down to the story, and you get all the the good episodes. Well, I know, but then you have to wait a year for your next installment. I think it'll lead to better more quality TV. I, I, maybe fifteen's a better number. We'll see. Okay. It's all negotiable because you know. But they're contracts. but they they've stopped the strike. The strike's not going to threaten your TV. <sighs> You'll be Good. okay. The owner of the giant rabbit who died on the in the care of United Airlines Tuesday or last Tuesday said the scandal uh, scarred airline cremated her bunny's remains so she would never know the truth about how the bunny died. The whole thing stinks of a cover up. She says her name's Annette Edwards. She's sixty five. She was talking to the. The Sun over in the UK. I had been asking United over and over again for his body so that I could have it examined here in Britain, but they they never got it back to me. All I want to know is how it died. A, uh, she's a UK rabbit breeder. She was flying the three-foot-long continental giant rabbit named Simon. <laughs> that had a name. From London to Chicago's O'Hare Airport to deliver him to his new owner in the US when he, as it says here, inexplicably kicked the bucket. Oh. Little graphic way of... I mean, come on. The bunny died. United claimed that this new owner in the U.S., uh, he claimed that the rabbit was alive when it was taken out of the cargo section of the airplane. The airline CEO, Oscar Munoz, uh, tried to apologize after the rabbit's death, but drew fire for likening the pet to misplaced baggage. Yeah, that was... This is, of course, after they dragged the guy off the airplane. Them is fighting words. They're not having a good time. United said there are PR problems, and uh, there's no autopsy because they cremated the animal oh, without permission oh boy the rumor that's out there yeah. that united says is completely false is that they left the animal in a freezer and it died how'd you like to perform a bunny or, autopsy this was no accident i think i did that in ninth grade didn't we dissect bunnies <laughs> well it's dissection they're already dead no i think we had to kill ours really they wow. weren't bunnies they were frogs sorry yeah. frogs and finally, Tom McDonald stood up from his upper deck seat at City Field in New York. Mr. McDonald is a re- recently retired New York City Transit Authority officer worker who has an obligation to his childhood friend and fellow Mets fan, Roy Regal, whose death nine years ago left Mr. McDonald 56 vowing to honor their baseball bonds in an unconventional way hmm. by disposing of Mr. Regal's ashes in ballparks across the country. Even more unusual was his chosen method, flushing them down public restroom toilets in the ballparks between innings. <laughs> the game has to be in progress. That's Hold a rule on. of mo- oh, Go ahead. Really? He, they, they flushed him down? Yeah. That's his request is he wants to be flushed. 
in the wow. pub- public restrooms of ballparks across the country. I think he said it had to be one of those troughs, too. Couldn't be a stall. had to be a trough. So the game has to be in progress. That's a rule, says okay. Mr. Yeah. McDonald. And one recent weeknight before uh, entering a city field bathroom holding a little plastic bottle containing a scoop full of Mr. Regal's cremains, <laughs> he stepped into the bathroom stall, sprinkled the ashes into the toilet with as much decorum as the setting allowed. A couple of flushes later, and Mr. Regal's remains were presumably on a journey through City Fields Plumbing. The key here is that Mr. Regal was a plumber, so how better to honor him than by plumbing his essence into the building Wow! that houses the game that he loves. They've been to 16 stadiums so far, and he's keeping a journal of the trips for the memory And, of and I friend. assume they're not, like, announcing where they're going. No. He's just going to ballparks, watches some of the game, stands up, goes down to the Has restaurant. a beverage. Has to be in between innings. Just <laughs> common course of the game. Wow. I mean, Flush your friend. you know what? <laughs> Great. He At least he knew what he wanted. Well, he's a plumber. Right. I want to be in the plumbing. He's a plumber that loves ball games. And But if you've been to the restroom of all places, I mean, wouldn't you rather, like, be scattered on the field? Well, you'd be arrested. Not really. You Maybe could if you have would... somebody do a streaking run across the thing. If he was, again, you. If you'd he be was arrested. A, if he was a groundskeeper. You wouldn't be arrested. You know, if his job was to mow be the dead. field, but he's a plumber. He wants to be in the plumbing. That's good. Okay. You know what? More power to you. Yeah. More power to you. Did you hear about this? Uh, did you hear about these two guys that are now um, being sued by a Wisconsin TV station? What they do? They pretended to be fitness experts on a morning news show. Oh. And it is the funniest thing. We've got to post it um, on our Twitter feed. Their names are Chop and Still. <laughs> and they're fake they're fake fitness experts. And if you look at them you can see they're not real fitness experts. But they were on a morning show in Wisconsin and um Chop Shopson, Joe Chop Shopson and Nicholas Steele Stealing uh whose names whose real names are Joe Pickett and Nick Pruer appeared on a WEAU Euclair Hello Wisconsin program. Uh, demonstrating a variety of strongman tricks. They, together, they would hold a cinder block and curled it together. Oh. And they're just talking about how you, you can use anything around home to um, to work out. They had a sword fight with racquetball and badminton rackets. And they just kept hitting each other, hitting the hitting the rackets with um, against each other. They played, they did karate chop sticks where they just gathered a bundle of sticks from the yard and one of them would karate chop them. See, they have a sign, and it looks like they just yeah. took out some paint and yeah. scribbled their name on it and threw it up and there. The funny thing is, like the the anchors of the morning show are just, just they're, they're learning they're, and they're learning everything you can do by <laughs> chopping sticks. They stomped on Easter baskets, and uh, like one of them would wheel in an Easter basket, and I guess Chop would step on it. How long did this go on for? It was like a five minute interview. Wow, they just kind I'm of... surprised they let him go on that long. The most ridiculous part was this stretch when Steel explained uh, works how, how he's got you got to work your delts, your tries, your plaps, your all pl- the major chest muscle groups. <laughs> your plaps. You got to work those plaps. So now they're being yeah. sued by um, by the station. Wow. So that so they can't do this to anyone else. But nonetheless, they've now got the footage out there. We will put it on our feed at Dr. Matt Show. If I could find it everywhere I go, it says the video is now unavailable. Oh, really? I'm surprised that they would sue him because that would just highlight their incompetence. Yeah. Oh, now, okay. now more and more people are going to see Chop and Steel. 
May I mention another please, one? Please, please. So apparently, this was a few years back. There was this guy that was, he was going around to all these local TV stations saying that he was this yo-yo champion. And he would go on the show, same type of thing. They would do this big build-up and introduction, and they would ask him to show them a couple of yo-yo tricks. And it was just complete and utter nonsense. He would just throw the yo-yo in a lasso around his head and make. So he would, there was nothing. He was not yeah. a yo-yo champion. Here's a picture of the guy. I think his real name is Mark Proch or something like that. The reason I bring this up. Does this guy look familiar to you at all? I can't see. Um, no. So apparently his shenanigans were viewed by Vince Gilligan and, um, gosh, what's the other, the other guy's name? Vince Gilligan of Breaking Bad fame. Oh, wow. They put him on their show, Better Call Saul. He was really? in two seasons of Better yeah. Call Saul. See, so that's all it takes is to just, like, be a buffoon and go on a morning show, and then the next thing you know, you got a career. Yeah. Maybe that's why these guys did it. So he had a fake name, and uh, yeah, he just went on there and made made a fool <laughs> of the TV stations. Maybe this shows you, too, what what is real journalism. Maybe this is fake news. If these guys can be faked out like this, it's just fake news. Alternative facts. <laughs> Maybe that's what set up the entire you know Donald Trump movement, is that people are okay watching fakery. Hmm. Who knows? Who knows? Uh, today, though, we got a great guest that's going to help us understand why there's so much tension about our political beliefs and why we are so willing, once somebody questions our political beliefs, to put those gloves on and start fighting, why we fight for uh, politics. Up next, right here on The Matt Townsend Show. You know, they say never talk about politics and religion in the workplace. Is this for a good reason? A study done by the University of Southern California explains why conversations get heated when people talk about politics and when their personal beliefs are being challenged. Here to speak with us about the research is uh, Dr. Jonas Kaplan, an assistant research professor at the Brain and Creativity Institute at the University of Southern California. Dr. Kaplan, thank you so much for being with us. Good morning. Thanks for having me on. Good. Thank you for being here. And I, you know, I really am so uh, excited to talk about this because for some reason we are so sensitive to our politics, aren't we? And to, I guess, our religious beliefs. What is it about these topics uh, that, that make us so either, I guess, reactive, fight or flight, or, or so, you know, sensitive? Yeah, that is a really good question, and that's one that we've been trying to answer with our research. Uh, we, we think that certain kinds of beliefs, like those that we have about politics and religion, are so important to us because they're part of our identity. You know, they're part of, of who we are and who we think we are and, and who other people think we are. They're, they're beliefs that tend to bind us to other people that we, we share in common with our, with our friends and family, and that makes them really difficult to change. Is it, is it I, guess, um, I guess it could be anything that, that our are so held personally? Is that what it is? Or is it, is there something unique about politics? I don't think there's something unique about politics. I think any belief that, that becomes really important to us and becomes central to who we think we are 
becomes really difficult to change. Um, and what, what we did is we uh, tried to use brain imaging to, to look inside the brain to see if we could learn what, what's happening when, when people get challenged on, on these important topics. Because like you said, this is an experience that all of us have, talking about politics or religion with, with friends and with family and how heated it gets. It seems like nobody ever changes their minds about these things. And from one perspective, it's important that we're able to remain flexible about politics in particular. I mean, it seems to me that one of the important principles of democracy is that by talking about things, by, by uh, dialogue and conversation, that we come to some kind of consensus. And mm. if nobody ever changes their mind about these things, um, it's, it's going to be very difficult for us to do that. So it's almost – and I think I read in, the, in your article about this idea that, I mean, it becomes part of our identity and part of our uh, social group, right? So because I guess part of this is that we are so tied to our religion. We are so tied to our political uh, group system um, that, that you, I guess it operates or it makes a, our brains, different parts of our brains function in different ways. Maybe talk about the brain and what's going on when we, when we have these feelings. Yeah, so what we did was we took people with really, really strong political beliefs, these were political liberals that we found from the Los Angeles area around USC, and we um, used functional brain imaging to look inside the brain while we challenged those political beliefs. We challenged both political beliefs that they had and other beliefs that they say that they believe just as strongly but aren't as committed to. So people believe things like Thomas Edison invented the light bulb, and we, we challenged that belief. And that's a belief people claim to hold very strongly, hmm. um, but it's not a political belief. It's not something that, that too many people are strongly committed to. Maybe there's a few Thomas Edison guys out there who, are, <laughs> who feel really strongly about that, but they weren't in our study. So we challenged their political beliefs and their non-political beliefs, and we watched what happened in the brain while it was going on. And of course, as you might expect, with their political beliefs, it was very hard to change people's minds. People were very resistant and defensive. But with non-political beliefs, we were able to make some progress by presenting people with facts and, and arguments. And when we looked into the brain to see what was happening to compare those two situations, we found a few interesting things. One is that when people were thinking about their political beliefs, and we challenged them on those beliefs that they hold really dear to themselves compared to other beliefs, we saw activation in a brain network that we're very familiar with now, and we call it the default mode network. This is a brain network that becomes active when people think about themselves and about their identity, and also about things that are really, really important to them. And I think that um, this kind of drives home this idea that these political beliefs are really, really, um, for, for many of us, part of the core of who we are, and that's mm. part of what makes them difficult to change. And, and when, the when that, well, by the way, when that brain goes off, when that part of the brain goes off, it's. I guess it just shuts down our openness. What does it do? Uh, I don't know if that in particular shuts down our openness, but I think that's part of the process that people engage in. When, when you are challenged, you tend to sort of look inward and to go inside yourself and to kind of remind yourself of all the reasons why you believe what you believe. You bring up all of the counter arguments. You rationalize. You do all the things that people do to try to remain unconvinced. Um, you know, people have a strong motivation here not to change their minds, partly because of these social factors we're talking about. And so they engage in all kinds of things. So I shouldn't say that, I should say we engage in all kinds of processes to avoid information that, that challenges us or to um, shut it down or to argue against it, to, you know, um, devalue the sources from which it comes. Hmm. Um, so we think that that is reflective of what, what we're seeing in the brain there is reflective of those kinds of processes. In some cases, when people are presented with evidence against their beliefs, their beliefs actually get stronger. It's called the backfire effect. And th that's partly because of this process where we kind of shore up our defenses when we're challenged. 
And so we can end up with even stronger defenses than we started from, which is totally counterintuitive, but it happens. Well, yeah, and it, the other thing we, is, is it not uh, – actually, just go ahead and then I'll ask the question because I, I want well, you to other, finish. Yeah, the other thing that we think is important here is emotion. So uh, w- one of the things we see is that um, when people activate emotional structures in the brain, we looked at two structures that are really important for emotion in the brain. One is called the amygdala and the other is called the insular cortex. The amygdala is really important when people – uh, feel all kinds of different emotions, particularly responding to threats and fears. And the insular cortex processes a lot of information from the inside of our body that helps us to feel things, like you know when your heart is beating fast or you, you um, feel something inside your body. And the more people activated these brain structures and being challenged, the more stubborn they were, the less open they were to information. And that makes sense to us as well, because we think that this kind of emotional process is, is key here, that the more sort of bad you feel, uh, the more negative affect you have when you're challenged, uh, the, the less likely you are to change. Hmm. This is so interesting because I'm assuming our brains would have evolved this way or, you know, formed this way for a survival instinct or method. But in a way, if we're, if we're actually, if, if we're not getting the accurate data and if we're having kind of the opposite of, uh, or a backfire effect, is it not, it's actually counterintuitive to, to survival, isn't it? Well, if you think about, it's a really good point. I mean, the brain's uh, main function and the thing the brain is designed to do is, is to defend ourselves, to keep ourselves safe. Um, and if you think of what the self is that the brain is keeping safe, well, for one thing, we want to keep our bodies safe. You know, we want to be away from a bear that's trying to eat us. On the other hand, once the psychological self comes into play, you have something else to defend. The brain has, has another thing to keep safe, which is your own identity. Right? Mm. And if one of these beliefs is part of that identity, then it's kind of like yourself is extending to that. And, and we think that's going on here. That the brain is treating these beliefs as if it's part of the self that needs to be defended. Interesting. Yeah. So we really are protecting our identity, even to the point that we're willing to to not see certain data or to, to actually go the opposite of the data and just go more on emotion. Yeah, that's right. And, and while you're right that it seems counterproductive to um, be so inflexible and to not be able to incorporate new data into our beliefs, on the other hand, we probably don't want to be completely um, uh, along the other extreme where any new piece of information comes in, we suddenly change our right, mind. Right, we sway. There's probably some, yeah, there's probably some value to having like a, a certain stability to our beliefs. How fascinating. So in, in the study... Um, <laughs> you put people in an imaging, um, I guess, machine, and then you you would take on their beliefs and you would see how their brain would light up. Yeah, that's exactly right. The technology we use is called uh, functional MRI, and it allows us to track um, blood oxygenation changes that relate to brain activity. And so we can see uh, where there are changes in brain activity that relate to what the person is doing uh, psychologically. And that's sort of how we uh, use uh, that's the technology we use to look at this thing, and we get a totally different kind of information from doing that than you would get if you just kind of ask people what's what's going on in their minds when they do something. So, huh? Well, when else? When, when do you see this happening? Other than political uh, topics, uh, is it any time someone's questioning a belief, or um, are there certain beliefs that it just didn't fire as hard? Yeah. So we compare these, you know, these political beliefs to people's non-political beliefs in, in this study. 
We've done some other studies with uh, religious beliefs in the past where we looked at people who had strong religious beliefs, both Christians and, and atheists, actually. Um, and we found some of the same brain regions that were activated in this political study were also activated in that study when people thought about their religious beliefs and what they, what they believed about, about God and religion. And we've also looked at what people uh, uh, are doing when they think about other kinds of um, things that are really important to them, different kinds of uh, moral issues that, that people uh, hold dear. We call these things protected values. They're things that are so important to us that we're, we're basically willing to sacrifice almost anything to protect them. And then they don't have to be political. It could be uh, religious beliefs. It could be beliefs about, uh, about, um, about the world or about your family or about certain kind of moral principles that you're just not willing to compromise on. Hmm. And uh, we think that whenever people are thinking about these special kinds of beliefs, that these, these special things are going on in our brains. Talk about maybe what, so you see this, I guess, being manifested anytime we have two parties or two people fighting about an issue. Just, I mean, is, is it that simple? Like what we're seeing now, kind of uh, post-Trump election, Democratic Democrats can't believe it. They're angry. Republicans are fighting or, you know, Trump supporters are fighting. Is is it, I guess, is it a useless conversation once we have two people fighting in their brains like this? I think often these conversations are useless. I mean, certainly in my experience, they, they often have been. Um, but, and then, you know, that's, what, that's kind of what led us to do this research. We, we spent so much time uh, arguing about these things and talking about these things with people really close to us, and it just seems so rare to actually witness someone change their mind on one of these topics. Yeah. But, uh, you know, I, I don't think it's necessarily useless. I think we can, you know, part of the reason we want to do this research is to understand how, this, how these conversations can be better. You know, mm. we think if, if we can sort of understand how we work, we can maybe come up with ways to have these conversations that are more productive. Um, you know, one, one thing we, we've learned from this is that emotion is important. And so if we can think of ways to keep ourselves less emotional in, in the context of these conversations, that's something that might help make them go better. Yeah, I know a lot of the literature around like emotional intelligence is pretty much doing whatever you can to not ignite the amygdala. You know, once right. so maybe if you could have the conversation in a way that we don't engage the amygdala too early, or I mean, I guess I'm assuming the more direct you were about the confrontation, the faster the amygdala would fire. Is is that? Did you see that? Yeah, I mean, what we were looking at here was kind of a full frontal assault where we just came right out and said, you know, "This is why you're wrong," um, and and that just doesn't work. Yeah, uh, on these topics, it does work in, in certain. Uh, in certain topics where information is more important to people than what they value. But when it comes to these kinds of values, that kind of full frontal assault is totally counterproductive. And so we've got to find a different way of doing it. Mm, Good stuff. Let's take a break. We're speaking with Dr. Jonas Kaplan, who is an assistant research at the Brain and Creativity Institute at the University of Southern California. He's also the co-director of the Dorensif Cognitive Neuroimaging Center at the USC. Uh, And as a cognitive neuroscientist, he's helping us understand our identity and what happens when it gets engaged or questioned and how it, how it may actually kick in some some pretty unpredictable responses, yet uh, the, the same responses that lead to so many of our fights politically and in the world. Stick with us. Helping you understand your brain. We'll be right back. This is The Matt Townsend Show.
Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Today we are speaking with Dr. Jonas Kaplan. He is the uh, an assistant research professor at, at the Brain and Creativity uh, Institute at the University of Southern California. His interests include neurobiology and uh, how they impact your deeply held beliefs and values. Dr. Jonas Kaplan, thank you again for being with us. Sure. So as part of your study, you're talking about you put people in functional MRIs, fMRIs, and you um, pretty directly confronted them on their some deeply held beliefs about politics and about just life in general, uh, who invented the telephone or whatever. And um, did you notice, and is it possible as people, because one of the things you're saying is that parts of our brain light up. We get diff- We get more blood flowing to certain parts of our brain when somebody starts questioning our beliefs. Are there some people that are more able to handle like a full frontal attack than others? Do, are there some that can manage the blood flow? Is that something that humans can actually do or is this just nature kicking in? That's a, that's a really good question. Uh, well, first of all, we, we did see a lot of variation among the people that we, we looked at. So uh, some people uh, were, were very, very defensive and activated the amygdala and the insula very, very strongly and those people – uh, were, the, were the least uh, open to our arguments. And, you know, I, I don't want to um, say that those people were, were necessarily doing something wrong. Right. right. The, the information that we gave them was, was also always not entirely true, so they, they were right to be skeptical. Um, but we also know that uh, emotion regulation is something that we can learn to be better at. Um, you know, we can, we can practice it, and through, through various techniques, we can, we can learn to be better at, at managing our kind of automatic emotional responses to things. So I don't think this is something that's, that's necessarily fixed in place. I and mean, there's definitely some, some biological uh, drives at, at work there, and we mm. have to deal with our own biology. But I, I don't think we should think of ourselves as, as being as sort of enslaved to it. Is it um, – it's interesting, too. I mean, I'm assuming – did you see anybody that really lost it? Uh, lost it in terms of uh, getting really upset? Yeah, um, in the study. I'm not, you know, not really. Um, you know, some people, uh, when they came out, they, they said that they, they weren't feeling so great about being challenged. But, uh, but people didn't, you know, we trapped them inside this little tube in the fMRI. <laughs> so they didn't have the option of, you know, counting their fists or anything, anything so interesting as that. That's interesting. Does, um, I mean, I, I, I just look at it a lot. I work with couples that, you know, argue, and, and you can almost see this same thing kicking into a traditional couple's argument about, identity. Uh, like, are you going to provide or are you not going to provide and you're not being a good wife or whatever? I mean, I'm assuming that a lot of it, a lot of our just day-to-day arguments might begin with this very simple questioning of our identity. Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, in, in that work that you've done, have you noticed anything that makes that, you know, any conditions that, that lead people to be more open and receptive to, to uh, changing their minds? You know, one thing I've actually found is slowing it down slowing the process down, and I try to do whatever I can to have them, um, you know, paraphrase, you know, just reflective listening puts, it seems like it puts people in their prefrontal cortex. And I don't know if being in the prefrontal cortex, get, it, I don't know if it keeps them out of the amygdala or if it mitigates the amygdala, but there's something about making them basically paraphrase what their partner's saying, not just react to it, that seems to, to, to change the tone or the tenor of this conversation. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, and that's partly what we see in um, research on on emotion regulation. When we give people emotions, emotional uh, stimuli, we ask them to kind of 
I think of different ways to conceive of those stimuli to make them less emotional for them, which we do see yeah. interactions between the amygdala and the prefrontal cortex in those situations. But you can see if you're if, if you can see if it's like coming at you in fast, you know, you know, firings of of uh, assault on you. All of the sudden, it's overwhelming, and then your brain lights up, and then it's just name calling. Right, and as soon as you're defensive, it's very hard to get out of that. Mindset. Yeah. Do you see that in the fMRIs? You can, can you can see the brain almost heating up in those areas then? Yeah, that's that's basically what we try to do. And you know, we don't we don't see it in real time. It takes a lot of data right. processing after the fact. Um, at least uh, with with the current technologies, it's difficult to see things in real time. So it's not particularly uh, useful at this point for you know live couples counseling. Um, yeah, but it, it's pretty good for for learning what's going on in the brain when, when these things are happening. Is is it a physiological? I mean, are are brains different of the people that struggle with this more, or is it just kind of a psychological? It's more interpreted. Uh, it's probably both. I mean, you know, from a, a neuroscience perspective, uh, everything in our psychology is ultimately rooted in our brain, and you know, any any time you have a, a change in your mind that's accompanied by a change in the brain. And those are, you know, really two sides of the same coin. So I, I don't really think of it as, as one or the hmm. other, but I, I think of it as sort of two different ways of looking at the same thing. Um, and, you know, you can, by, by changing your psychology, you're, you're changing your brain. And, and so, again, it's important, I think, not, not for us to think of because something is rooted in the brain that it's somehow fixed and, and unchangeable. Right. We can, we can definitely change our brains. Where do you see you're going to take the, the research going forward now? We'd like to learn a lot more about uh, the, uh, how emotion is involved in this process. We're doing some work now to look at uh, how the physiology of the body responds when, when people are challenged. Uh, that's, that's one line of research. Uh, the other thing is that you know, we'd like to expand this to wider groups of people. So we looked at uh, people with strong liberal beliefs in our study because they were, they were very easy for us to find around here. Um, but yeah. there's good reason to believe that liberals and conservatives are, are not identical. No, you ought to come to BYU. We could do some conservatives. Yeah, yeah that's, that's, we'd love to do that. And we, we might not find the same thing. I mean, I, I think there are probably some general principles there. Um, but we know, for example, that uh, there's some evidence that conservatives uh, often even have a different amygdala than, than liberals. So really? I think it's really? Yeah. Um, Talk about that. Well, there's there's some evidence that um, the the amygdala can be larger in people with conservative orientations, and and that um, they they can respond to threat differently. Hmm. Um, part of part of conservatism involves sort of valuing um, keeping the status quo, yeah. um, and so it, it makes sense that that people don't respond to threats the same way. That's interesting. Uh, so, that, which is why, again, yeah, that's why you might see somebody that's you know liberally or liberal or open minded to. Things that conservatives might see as a threat, but it's really their brain. Just if it, if they did have a smaller amygdala, they have less response to it uh, to certain things as threats. Yeah, that's, that's exactly right. Hmm. And uh, the other the other uh, thing line of research I think is really important is for us to try and start testing out some of these uh, things we can do to um, make people more open minded. Under what conditions can we um, create circumstances where people are more receptive to evidence? Can we kind of do things to damp down the backfire effect. For example, if we give people training in emotion regulation, does that help people to respond to these kinds of challenges in, in a more rational and less emotional way? Yeah. No, and I think that would be – it's just so valuable. It's, it's amazing how much we're learning. Um, 
and yet how much we still have to learn about this. It's Yeah, I mean, when it comes to the brain, it, we just only know the tip of the iceberg. There's so much more to learn. Do you um, – what would you sense kind of as, as we wrap up, what would you sense or suggest we do if we want to, um, you know, decrease our reactivity to threats of identity? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. I mean, one, one thing is that I think we want to be aware of what our identity is and what, what beliefs are important for our identity so that we can um, be prepared for, for our own reactions when, when those things are challenged. I think a lot of times a lot of this uh, goes unexamined for us. and We're not really um, clear that, that certain beliefs and values are, are so important for our identity until they're challenged, and then we, we find ourselves reacting in this way. So that's one thing is just sort of reflect on, on uh, how these things are important to us. And then the second thing is just to be aware of our own uh, emotions and to see what we can do to uh, remain calm in these situations and to uh, try to talk to people from a, a position of uh, empathy instead of from a position of defensiveness. Mm. Yeah, try to understand their story. I mean, by the way, by showing empathy and understanding, you could maybe talk about harder issues without igniting or over-igniting the amygdala. Yeah, I think that's one of the things that, that can help is to try to connect to the underlying values that we know that people we're talk, talking to have rather than just kind of um, you know, quibbling on the, on the surface level facts. Mm. We do it all the time. Dr. Jonas Kaplan, thank you so much for your great research there at USC. And, uh, and keep it up, man. We need to learn more about why the brain shuts us down and lights us up. Excellent stuff, folks. We'll take a break. When we come back, we'll do a little Coach's Corner as well as some other uh, learning. It's straight ahead. Stick with us. This is The Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends. Hey, a little coach's corner for you. Um, I, again, I coach a lot of people. A lot of couples come in and see me as well as people struggling with anxiety or depression or you name it, ADHD, uh, guilt, other issues. And so one of the things that I try to work a lot on is – and in the show, uh, our last guest and our next guest next hour, we're going to be talking a lot about emotions and emotional management. But there is – there are a few tricks uh, to emotional management that I think can help you take control of this fight-or-flight part of your brain. The fight-or-flight part of your brain, remember, is it's there to protect you. But as we learned, the protection is just as much for your physiology, your body, as it is for your psychology or your identity. So our body, our, our fight-or-flight instincts will kick in just as strong and just as aggressively for the need to protect, you know, don't make fun of my high school as it will for, um, you know, I'm going to kill you. It's they're just they're threats. And it's it's not like the body can always distinguish, especially because the amygdala is so wired to fight or flight instantly. So some rules that we teach in my program, um, again, and, and uh, Dr. Kaplan hit it perfectly. One of them is just to start noticing your thinking. The more aware you are and the more aware we all become of our own thinking and how we react to certain events, how we see certain things, the more abilities we have to handle these events. 
Again, it doesn't eliminate the fact that I have issues, but as soon as I know that, boy, I'm really sensitive to certain things. For example, I know a bigger trigger for me is um, is more when my kids like question my authority. And when they question my authority, that's more likely to set me off than um, or my ex- my experience than almost anything else they can do. They can call me a name. They can say whatever they want. But when, you know, when I say something like, you know what, okay, time for bed. You guys got to go to bed. And they're like, well, mom said we didn't have to. Boy, what has your mom got to do with this? And off we go. So what triggers you? We want to start to identify what the triggers are. And and generally, I, I've found that we tend to be triggered by any time we question if we're capable if you're questioning my capability, if you're questioning if I'm loved, if I, if I feel what you're doing is attacking me in a way that I feel unlovable, or when I feel unsafe, those tend to be the three biggest triggers I found. Um, lack of safety, lack of capability, like I'm just not cutting it anymore, or lack of lovability. So think about it. What triggers you to, you know, to go off? What What's the thing that most pushes you to just walk out? of a discussion with your wife? Is it that every time she brings something up, do you feel like she's questioning if you're capable, if you're good enough to do this kind of stuff? Do you question if you're loved? Or do you question, um, you know, if you're going to be safe physically, socially, emotionally, spiritually, financially? So once you start to become more aware, then you can start to understand how your triggers go off and what works for you. I mean, I found a lot of times... Just breathing, taking a deep breath helps a lot to be able to manage my reactions. Um, Another thing I found is a great tool is anything you can do to get into your what I call your higher brain. Um, One fast way to do that, by the way, is math. If, If you would take a million and count down from one million by 17s, I'm going to bet you won't fight about whatever your wife is bringing up. Right. And one reason is because if you have to go into your high brain and start making sense of something that's more complicated, then all of a sudden you don't have time to just get into your low brain and fight or flight. One of the ways I do this, and there's a really interesting um, parallel to it in the court system. If you notice in courts, they have a lot of rules and a lot of uh, ways that you approach the bench, the ways that you, you're allowed to say what you want to say in the courtroom. They have so much structure and so many rules to, to uh, obey and so much just protocol for how you handle the courtroom that I think the protocol itself keeps the people from fighting or flighting and reacting to each other. I mean, think about it. You have people in a court system that truly do not like each other. They hate each other, but there's so much process that that is demanding their brain power. Otherwise, they lose the case, right? They, they'll get the judge mad at them, so they follow the protocol. And when you follow the protocol, the process is nice and slow and methodical, and the protocol keeps you from reacting, overly reacting to each other in the courtroom. I found the same is true in our in our relationship. So we teach our couples when we're teaching them how to have a have to have a serious conversation that might normally set us off that there's some protocols we're going to follow. We're going to learn to recognize each other emotion each other's emotions. I call this getting real. Recognize the emotion, explore the story behind it. Behind every emotion there's a story. 
And if I can let the person that's I'm that we're I'm struggling with that I'm arguing with share their story without me jumping in and without me reacting to their emotion, and I explore their story, I'll be able to hear where they're really starving. Deep down in the story, you'll hear where they're really being affected. You'll hear if they have a lovable issue, if they have a capable issue, if they have a safety issue. I call that stuff the starve stuff. So we recognize their emotion. You seem upset. We explore the story. Tell me what's going on. And I attend to what they're saying. I really listen to where they're hurting. And then before I do all of those three things before I try to ever lift the conversation. And to lift the conversation, I try to do what I call – it's a very simple rule that I call the 80-20 rule. I believe in every discussion you have with another human being, 80% of what they're saying you agree with. I agree that the world is complicated today. I agree that, uh, you know, we didn't take care of America like we should have. I admit that uh, we, you know, I've been part of the problem. I accept. I, I affirm. And you just – you go with them wherever they are, where you can go with them. And then you share your side and I have a different side and then you can tell your side. And I don't think that we should, you know, make everybody feel unsafe by saying certain things politically. Does that make sense? So we recognize emotion, we explore, we attend, and we lift conversations. They're skills and they're skills you can learn. I'm teaching them every day. And you know what? You learn. You learn to do it. This stuff works. Um, It's not a silver bullet, but it's a skill. And you can learn to do it. And the more you do it, the easier it gets, I think, for all of us. So great learnings, I think. Uh, That's why we do the show, to give you the tools, the information you need to live healthier, happier lives. We'll take a break. Stick with us. When we come back, we'll continue the journey of emotions. This is The Matt Townsend Show. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends. Hour number two of the love fest we call the Matt Townsend Show. This is the program where we try to get uh, the latest, greatest thinkers and researchers on the program to help you understand your own human experience. It ain't easy. It ain't an easy thing to do today. We're going to be making sense of your emotions. Dr. Frank Ninavaji will be joining us. Uh, Frank's been on the show many times. Probably one of the smartest men I think I know. A Yale psychiatrist. And uh, I'm telling you, he's going to be enlightening us about emotions and uh, you know the importance of our own emotions Ah, they just get us. We feel things in our hearts, deep, deep, deep in our hearts. The kiss of a cute little grandbaby. The spilt milk on the carpet. The scratch of the face of a grandparent who was just trying to help. All part of life. Oh, Oh, sorry. When they spit up and it hits you... On your brand new suit. Yes. It's wonderful. When you have a brand new car and the truck in front of you is dropping little rocks, slowly sandblasting your hood, all these things make you want to just wring the neck of another human being. Today on The Matt Townsend Show, we will be teaching you how not to take your emotion out on others and instead 
turn that frown upside down and smile that frown away. So do we, do we repress the emotion, just drive it down deep and don't address it? Is no. That what, no. One must feel their emotions, Sensei. Okay. I think uh, that was a superhero quote. You got off, you got that off of the uh, fortune that's on the board here. Yeah, one must feel your emotions. By the way, went uh, this is how this is how bad of a grandparent we've been as we've been tending our grandchild. Took her to sushi. Uh, there's not a lot of food at a sushi bar for an 18 month old baby. Except the beans, maybe like some edamame. Uh, no, she's not into beans. Hmm. You know what she loved? Rice, sticky rice. Oh yeah, and avocado. Now, as a child, did you ever just love pounding avocados? No, no texture problem. Yeah, but this kid loves avocados and sticky rice. By the way, a couple days later, guess what we found out? It constipates you. <laughs> <laughs> so. Anyway, we ruined our baby, but we handed our cute little grandbaby off to the other grandparents, and right before she fell on a walk with my wife and skinned her knee. Mm, so you damaged goods. We damaged our grandbaby. Wow. Well. We're so sorry. Why I bring this up? Because today is baby day. Today's the day you get to celebrate the cute little babies, many of which you were a baby. Uh, many of you were babies, you know. Most of us. I'm pretty sure almost all of you. Some people were born grown up. That's true. And uh, the babies that you have your car seats for in the back of your uh, back of your cars, which I think is so cute. It's kind of the law. It's kind of the law. Yeah, you get arrested if you don't. So. Yeah. So we'll be talking babies all day today. Also, um, we'll be giving you a recipe or at least the, we'll tell you what kind of pizza is guaranteed to induce labor, according mm. to one mom. I'm listening. Actually, it's multiple moms. Is it? But it's not like proven. It's just sort of... It's the old castor oil pizza. Yeah. Nothing induces but labor like that. The, the the pizza establishment is doing nothing to stop this, uh, this sort of this rumor and yeah. you know, trend to continue because they're seeing sales. So. Speaking of castor oil, yes, my wife's doctor begged her not to drink castor oil. Really? Begged her. So, but all the old wives' tales say, no, you just throw back some castor oil and boom. Right, but he uh, doesn't want to deal with any potential... Yeah. He's, yeah. He, yeah, he's probably brilliant because, you know, there's new research, I'm sure, about the effects of castor oil. And, by the way, avocado. I don't think he needs the research. And because sticky Because he's dealt with women who have had castor oil and has had to deal with the... Uh, the aftermath. Yes. We'll call hey, it that. We'll call it the aftermath. By the way, um, we'll also give you some ideas if you're tired of walking, some other things you might want to steal, perhaps a forklift. Hey, there you go. We'll get to that. All right. Plus, if you receive duplicate tax refunds, we suggest you only cash one of them. Mm, right. Unless you want to owe the IRS. The whole concept of it's their fault, so we'll just cash them both. Yeah. We'll come back to haunt you, so don't do that. They won't take it. So we'll get to all that fun straight ahead, but first to the headlines with Terry South. Terry, what's up? The turmoil at Fox News Channel has claimed another victim. The network said Monday that Bill Shine, the network's co-president and longtime lieutenant of ousted Fox News CEO Roger Ailes, is out. He is stepping down. His departure follows the firing of top personalities Bill O'Reilly and Ailes, both amid charges that they had harassed women. Shine was not accused of harassment, but there were questions about what he knew about the network's workplace atmosphere 
for the and the years the problems were going on and what he did to not stop it or try to yeah. curtail things and Fox has lost their shine. They have lost their shine was the headline yesterday. The NFL draft may be three straight days of names being called out from a podium, but it's a ratings boon for ESPN and the NFL Network. This year's draft drew an average of 4.6 million combined TV viewers for the two networks over three days. That number is second the second biggest ever behind 2014. The biggest numbers to go along with that event, the year's draft. Was, this year's draft was more of a spectacle than years past, taking place on a giant stage on the rocky steps at the Philadelphia Museum of Art. Usually it's in a stadium. They did it at Radio City Music Hall for years. Now they're moving it around. Cities That's are good. bidding oh, for oh, the show. Are they really? So now they had it on the steps of the Rocky Museum. and huh. they had a, At one point there was a, a famous Dallas Cowboy player out there reading off the next draft pick and he's provoking Philadelphia Eagle fans by reminding them that while they haven't won a championship since oh. the 60s the Cowboys have six titles or whatever it was it just it was really really great so yeah lots of fun there was an orangutan I think making draft picks it was a, it was a great NFL oh, interesting. draft of watching <laughs> essentially somebody come up read a name and sit down but how do you make that interesting but see, They're this finding is what a way. the NFL does best this is how you keep people wanting right. to watch your programming um, in other news, if organizers of the music festival turned disaster known as the Fry Festival had any hope of making a quick buck, their strategy may be backfiring in a big way. Rolling Stone reports that an attendee slash survivor has filed a $100 million class action lawsuit against festival creators Billy McFarlane and rapper Ja Rule, as Matt, you know, his real name is Jeffrey Atkins. Yeah. The complaint ticks off a by-now-familiar litany of complaints about the supposedly luxurious getaway in the Bahamas that saw everything that could go wrong do so in spectacular fashion. Uh, one big problem for McFarlane and Ja Rule was their well-heeled clientele can afford big-name lawyers. Oh, boy. Tickets were like $10,000 for group Are of four seats. It Come was just on. get away, go to the Bahamas, all kinds of concerts, festival. And they got there. There was no food. Travel was, you couldn't get off the island. Uh, there were tents set up, and they all blew away. Just everything went wrong. People were stranded. Now they're suing. Uh. Right? So the tip is, if you're going to do a concert, make sure you don't have people that have enough money to sue you for money you <laughs> don't have. So, But they said, no big deal. We're going to come back next year and make it bigger and better than ever. Hmm. So the whole ordeal was, uh, let's see, uh, it was compared to the Hunger Games or Lord of the Flies. Really? Yeah, it was pretty bad. It, it went off on social media all weekend. It was just kind of a thing. But Where it, was I? You were not on social media. Because I was trying to get my baby to... Go to the bathroom. And finally, a Scottish man is extremely lucky to be alive after spending more than 32 hours at sea with only his surfboard. Matthew Bryce, 22, spotted by a Coast Guard helicopter some 13 miles off the coast of Scotland around 7.30 p.m. Monday. After the uh, after first jumping in the waves almost a day and a half earlier, Bryce is from Glasgow. had had so, told family members he was planning to surf at the beach around 9 a.m. Sunday. He hit the waves about two and a half hours later. When he hadn't returned after several hours, family members became uh, concerned, called the police, Coast Guard rescue teams from several bases, com- uh, combed the shorelines near where he probably where, where they thought he was surfing. But just as hope and daylight were fading Monday, a Coast Guard helicopter spotted Bryce with his bright orange surfboard. 13 miles off the coast oh. where a rip current had apparently carried him. He was hypothermic but conscious. He was airlifted to the hospital. Coast Guard rep says his ability to stay with a surfboard helped save him along with all the right clothing, including his thick neoprene suit. Unbelievable. And you, what do you do? You don't even know which way to, to row, right? Because well, could he even see land anymore at 13th miles out? Probably not. 
And then he's hypothermic, so – and then the uh, rough seas. And yeah, he's just fighting it the whole way. But what a stud to be there. Wow. And the orange surfboard helped. I would have given up by, I don't know, dinner. Then right. you would have become dinner. I know. Keep your feet on the board. That's what I learned. Wow, cool hero there, a little hero story. Hey, a little uh, – Tax information for you. 500 Rhode Island residents have received duplicate tax refund checks, totaling now $364,000. A state official in Rhode Island says human error is to blame. The checks were sent in a group of refunds mailed Friday. The checks people received are identical, but only one of the two checks can be cashed. If you got two checks and they're identical... Only cash one of them. Ah, oh, come on! Tell me about it. The Department of Administration Policy Director Allison Rogers says people can cash one check and return the other to the state, hmm. along with a brief explanation. It's all fun and games till you cash two checks, and then all of a sudden, Rhode Island's after you. And nothing worse than having Rhode Island nipping at your heels. Do you think they're underestimated because they're so small? Yes. Okay. But they carry a big punch. Apparently. When you cash two of their checks. So people in Rhode Island, watch out for that. Uh, One of the things we've been doing on the show is a lot of our producers are now uh, graduating or – Taking summer internships. Taking summer internships. They're just experiencing growing pains. We have been in need of replacing some of these great contributors. And so I've uh, I've assigned Jeffrey uh, Liam Simpson to – Research some people. He's he's and he's now testing some people on air. One we had was Bob Moss, who has a plant show to do plant therapy. He must be at the top of your list because he's. I think he's the only one you remember. Well, it's it's because it, it's very close to my favorite uh, PBS painter, Bob Ross. So I remember Bob Moss because I don't know if they're related in any way, but you can watch that on Netflix. By the way, I love I love Bob Ross. Let's put some clouds in Just here. Just put a little mountain right here. Mm. <laughs> Love Bob. He's my man. So he's the guy that made me want to get into radio and television. And he, he and Walter Cronkite. No, I never knew Walter. He and Tom Brokaw. Really? Not really. Okay. You're just searching for a name. Got you. Go on. Um, so talk to me, Jeffrey. We've got another person, another contributor possibility here. Yeah, so we had one idea for a show that you weren't crazy about. Uh, it was a sitcom called The IT Guy. Yeah. Just the mishaps of a very inept, yeah, not, goofy uh, not IT very guy. smart and, yeah. Right. And, you know, there are plenty of shows out there about people that are not very good at their jobs. Right. So maybe that's why you decided yeah, to pass that. on that. I've seen that one. Uh, this one is uh, a kind of – Crosses to it meshes two worlds okay. that you would never consider to mesh. Great, so or this, mix. they could we could have a segment of their show yeah. every week. And you mentioned speaking of taxes because yeah. you just did the story on taxes. Uh, it's a it's the tax world mixed with westerns. Hmm. And the name of the show is simply the Tax Man. Okay. So here it is. Keep an open mind. Here's a test. Keep an open mind. Test of the tax man. There's an old saying that goes, cheat death, and sooner or later, death will come looking for you. But in the town of deduction, there was a different saying. Cheat on your taxes, and sooner or later... 
the tax man will come looking for you. You see, the town of deduction was full of all types of scoundrels. The type of men that would deduct a personal lunch expense and not think twice about it. Yes, sir. The town was ripe with illegal and downright unethical behavior. And it looked like things would stay that way forever. Until the day the tax man rode into town. Now, um, down at the old oh, kid's place, sorry. folks was trying to cool off. But on this particular day, even the ice cubes in their drinks was hot. It was the kind of day a man wished he could be a snake, just so his blood would be cold. And when the saloon door swung wide open... Revealing Evan the Evader Evanston, things started to heat up even more. Bartender, give me a ginger ale on the rocks. Shucks, I'm celebrating. Drinks all around. <laughs> yeah. Hey, bartender, you know why I'm celebrating? I'll tell you why. I just hired a Chinaman to do some mining for me. Only I hired him as a contractor instead of an employee. <laughs> that way, he's got to pay his own Social Security and Medicare. With the money I'll save, I can take a trip to France and finally try out some of those French fries I've been hearing so much about. <laughs> Shoot, maybe I'll even write it off as a business expense. <laughs> Don't pack your bags just yet, Evanston. It was the tax man, a man the people of deduction feared more than anything. That's part one of the episode. So you have to wait until tomorrow to get part two. There's going to be some great tax lingo being thrown at you tomorrow. That you may not understand. So you could learn something yeah. and be entertained and be on the edge of your seat because it is quite thrilling. Hmm. I'm not seeing it. Well, you haven't heard part two. Well, I did hear part one, and it's actually made me not really want to hear part two. Well, it's already on the schedule for tomorrow. I don't know if this show fits our, you know, our. it doesn't fit. What we're doing with our show, I guess, is don't you saying. don't you ever have guests that uh, talk about taxes? Yeah, but they don't like they don't put down people based on demog demographics. They don't call people Chinamen. Well, this guy is not very literate. Well, I guess this is also topical not, to like very what, years ago. He's not very wise or smart. I just, I, mean, I think, I think there might be other shows that might like the storytelling part of this more on but it, BYU Radio. But it not. takes it takes place, like you said, about a hundred years ago. Yeah, but don't we need like tax advice from today? Uh, it's all the same. And don't it's get never me wrong. Changed. <laughs> That's true. Actually, don't get me wrong. I love, I love a good tax evader story. Eh. But uh, I don't know. Let, let's let's think this one through because. So far, Bob Moss is still at the top of my list, <laughs> and Bob's the guy that just does plant therapy. So 
we're not having a lot of luck. If any of you out there in listener land would like to propose a show, mm. just just email us. Go go to our Twitter page at Dr. Matt Show. Give us your latest and greatest, your proposals for other – not shows, but other content that we could be doing on the show. Uh, give us a call, one eight five five chat byu Maybe we'll have our producers pick up those calls. And you could give us ideas, one eight five five chat byu What – I mean other than the tax man. So are you telling me that I wasted 48 hours in all those pitch meetings well, listening so, I mean, to I mean, all these got, people go on and on and on? Up. You've got a lot more lined up, so maybe not. Maybe we'll find a, a diamond in the rough. But uh, I'm not into – I'm not – the tax advice mixed with the Western, it's – I don't know. Maybe. Oh, come on! I know. Anyway, let's get to emotions. Up next, Dr. Frank Ninavaji will be joining us. My, one of my favorite psychiatrists from Yale is going to be on the show helping us understand our own emotions. Excellent stuff. Straight ahead, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. Stick with us. Welcome back, friends. You know, emotional thinking is our first language. Emotions are the first language of all of us. It's universal. Dr. Ninavaji uh, who has been a guest on our show many times, he's one of our favorite contributors, is with us today to examine the importance of understanding emotions as a tool and how they can be applied to benefit our lives, our relationships. He has a book coming out, uh, due out, I believe, in August, Making Sense of Emotion, Innovating Emotional Intelligence. And I'm honored again to have you on the show, Dr. Frank Ninavaji. Thank you for being with us. You're welcome, and I'm honored as well, as usual. Thank this is, you so much. This is one of – every time I see your name on the docket, I'm like, yes, now <laughs> Frank can take us on a journey of emotions. And I don't – I really don't know how many people um, – I what's the word? Um, understand emotion like you do. You you mention it as a biomental perspective. And I've, I've always, I'm always enamored with that idea. Just help us understand um, what, what is a biomental idea. Okay. Well, um, I'll just sort of preface that by saying this. The um, forward to the book was written by my new chief of child psychiatry at Yale, Linda Mays. She's an MD, and she's world-renowned for her work on infants and young children. <clears throat> so she... Uh, was gracious enough to read the entire book and write a very wonderful, charming, perceptive, highly intelligent, very favorable forward to the book. And one point she made of many was that Dr. Ninavaji has a knack for using and inventing terms and terminology which are absolutely new, if not, quote-unquote, innovative, which have never been used in psychiatry or child psychiatry in the past, yet give life and depth to what he means and what he wants to convey. Exactly. And, uh, yeah, it is. It is, and, yeah, and you're so good myself, at it. Wow. And by the way... Uh-huh. the sound suggests the sound. She hit it on the head... And years ago, 
that word, I actually coined that term, that word, biomental, probably 10, 12 years ago. And as they say, I was so fascinated with it, I wrote a book about it. (laughs) Biomental child development. In order to emphasize how important the actual physicality, the material body is, and not merely the um, sense of the child's words or only behavior, try to not seeing any individual, especially children and infants, separate from the concrete reality they present, not seeing ourselves as separate from who we are concretely incarnated in the world. We are one, or maybe the aspiration, the value, the prime value, is to realize our oneness and our integrity, and to aspire to be in, uh, uh, to have integrity, to, to meld all our thinking, all our feeling with all our actions. Hmm. And then we, we achieve integrity as a human being, honorableness in our performance. And that's actually another uh, phrase that I kind of coined when I was writing the new book on um, making sense of emotion, innovating emotional intelligence. I felt that everybody who has been talking about emotional intelligence left out the key, the key, hitting, you know, hitting the nail on the head. Right. And that is the bottom line of emotional intelligence is what I call emotion performance utilization. What you do as a result of thinking and feeling, understanding your emotions, what you do, how you behave, how it shows up in your behavior. It's how the emotion drives your behavior. Emotion performance utilization. Yeah, Yeah, so you brought out... I mean, two things here, really. You're saying biomental would mean body, mind, you're a whole, you're a whole being. So we can't just check right. your physiology or your psychology. They integrate, they work together, and even right. spiritual, as we've talked about That's in the past. Right. Which, and we need integrity between those areas. Um, and then you, and then another one is emotion performance utilization, because when it, when we talk about emotional intelligence, there's been books about it. Daniel Goleman, some of the great books uh, in the past ten, fifteen, twenty years about it. But one of the keys you're saying that everyone's missing out on is it's not enough to just recognize your emotion or understand your emotion. It's how your emotions create your behavior or drive behavior. Utilize By their fruits, ye shall know them. Hmm. Right. Faith without good works is dead. Right. And that's what everybody has missed. And you know how I con- one of the ways I knew it, it was pounded in my head when I was researching the last book, Making Sense of Emotion, and looking at how <clears throat> the men at Yale, the researchers, and even Daniel Goleman, and then there is an Israeli um, researcher and writer, Bar, uh, Bar-On, B-A-R-O-N, who's very well known yeah. uh, on uh, emotional intelligence. They have measurement scales to measure emotional intelligence, but they all omit the performance component. Hmm. 
they all omit performance and behavior in how they measure it. And I thought to myself, how can you do that? Hmm. Because that's where it's at. Well, that's and as a psychiatrist, exactly isn't that where you start? I mean, you you're, you sit in your in the hospital, the parents bring their children in, and they're usually complaining about behavior, aren't they, yes. or performance. So you that's start exactly there. right. And then you have to kind of re you have to what is it reengineer and go back to I guess the the biomental side of it what's driving this behavior Exactly what I do you know and I've said this before and I'm kind of famous or actually sometimes infamous for this almost almost all obviously not all but almost all which means 98% of all people and families come to me, and I say, how may I help you? And they say, I have ADHD. That is definitely the blue plate special of this day and age. Hmm. Yeah, I can't focus. I have ADHD. My child has ADHD. I have it. My husband, his mother, his his grandmother, his uh, Neanderthal ancestor. We all have it. You know, they all have it. So... When you say I have to re-engineer, I think of it this way. I have to understand that that is what they say and think and possibly believe because of the media. Hate to be Donald Trump about it, but it is the media. <laughs> you sound like Donald, Frank. That's all you see on the media Yeah, because there are dollars and cents involved with the medications right. and the diagnoses. <clears throat> so... I, what I do is I take it in, I absorb it, I modulate it, and that's another word I made, I made famous. I, in my book, when yeah. it comes out, I modulate rather than manage. I modulate and then reframe. I reframe. I reframe the whole picture of those people's perception and conception of themselves and their children. And once I do, it's sort of like I tell the residents and the medical students, ADHD, bring it up on your computer, now press delete. <laughs> once you press delete, let's go from there. Yeah. Because now we can, now we're cooking with gas. Now we can really look at the biomental individual, the psychological you know, I don't add the spiritual, but I'm talking about the essence, the quality, yeah. the, the Elan Vital of that child and child within the family, that mother, that father, whether they're present or absent, the integrity of the family. Let's look at what's really going on and let's kind of evaluate it and then let's formulate a treatment plan, hmm. not a medication pill. But a treatment plan that's comprehensive. Do is that a mistake that we make, Frank? Almost in, in all medicine, where um, we we like a diagnosis, but and we kind of overlook the complexities of the human, and we just quickly grab the diagnosis because then there's a pill, there's a treatment, and I know in medicine a lot of times those are the money makers, right? It's it's the procedure now we have to do. It's the it's the diagnosis. It's the medicine we're going to sell, but instead we we overlook the whole we we overlook the whole mechanism of 
of how we got here. We look, we overlook all the other systems, the family, the the bio, the mental side. Is that just inherent in our in our medicine today? Right, and that has to, a lot to do with the human mind's binary processing, which is another. Mm. I don't know if I yeah. coined that term, but I get a lot of leverage out of that because uh, years ago we used to call it splitting but nobody wants to use those uh, terms because they have a psychoanalytic connotation which again yeah. is considered uh, archaic or passe but it was throwing out the baby with the bathwater so i call it binary uh, processing which means we like to divide things into all black all white all good all bad and that leads everybody to the tendency to simplify and reduce and find an answer, which really is like the, it's the adult version of the child's quick fix. Mm -hmm. I want instant gratification. So we have to make a diagnosis, find a cause, and then instantly with that cause is the knee-jerk reflex. Oh, there's a definite medication just like with the ADHD. Bring the child in, not doing well at school, rambunctious, a rebel, therefore ADHD, <laughs> and immediately riddle in a stimulant yeah, which, and send them home. Which, I mean, I'm assuming if you put a stimulant on most of us, we would behave differently. We gasoline might get more done. on fire. Right. It's gasoline on fire. Initially, it quells and anesthetizes the situation for two weeks, and then all the negative side effects begin to emerge little by little, step by step, and form no appetite, weight loss, insomnia, hmm. anxiety, irritability, mood instability, uh, anger eruptions. And so the parent brings the child back, New diagnoses are added, new medications are added, and then you get layer upon layer of complexity, which you didn't even have before. Right. And now you have, and eventually these kids come into residential settings like mine, and I have to kind of uh, work with, re-engineer, reframe, clean up the situation. Hmm. Boy. I've been doing that for over 20 years. And and again, it goes back to the systemic side of this. You can't you can't do something to the biology or to the mental side without impacting the whole. Again, it's a system, and it's a system. Little tweaks here cause long term repercussions that won't be immediate. They might be you know in a year or five. Well, didn't they? Wasn't there even a movie and they call it the butterfly effect? Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. No, totally. There's no action without a reaction. Let's. The people in the 60s and the 70s, it was my generation, <laughs> they used to, you know, get into uh, Oriental, uh, Asian philosophies, and they called it the law of karma. Mm. You know, as ye sow, so shall ye reap. Action, reaction. There's nothing that we can do or even not do. That doesn't have consequences. So true. So, so true. We'll take a break. We're speaking with Dr. Frank Ninavaji, medical doctor, assistant clinical professor of child psychiatry at Yale School of Medicine, um, the Child Study Center. He's also a member of the Yale New Haven Community Medical Group and uh, the author of the upcoming book, Making Sense of Emotion, Innovating Emotional Intelligence. 
Stick with us, folks. When we come back, we're talking emotional intelligence up next. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. On the phone with us is Dr. Frank Ninavaji. He's an assistant clinical professor of child psychiatry at the Yale School of Medicine Child Study Center. Uh, also has a wonderful um, blog that I love to read on psychology today called Envy This. Um, probably the smartest man I know. And by far, uh, and also the, the beauty of Dr. Frank Ninavaji, not only brilliant, but empathic and loving and caring to humans, and uh, that's why you got to love the guy. Dr. Ninavaji today is teaching us about emotional intelligence and his new um, book that is to be released, I believe, in August. Is that right, Frank? Making Sense of Emotion, Innovating Emotional Intelligence. Yes, yes. Hope We hope it'll come out in August because it's, uh, it's all done. The cover is on Amazon. It's a great cover. You know, I paint. Actually, one of my paintings is on the um, article, Hmm. Uh, emotions, uh, yeah. emotions as our mother tongue. I, they, they have so many rules and regulations about what you can put as an illustration. Right. So I use my own stuff. Yeah, because you, you own your own stuff. About it. That's beautiful. But I designed the cover, and uh, I think it's a great cover. It's it it uh, again. I love that word. I learned in uh, uh, in high school. Onomatopoeia. Uh-huh. I think the cover suggests the sense of the book. There you go. Yeah, yeah. Is is um talk about emotional emotions are the primary language of all humans. This is the first and it's natural, right? We don't have to even cognitively think but we can emote. Right, right. That is very very primary. Um it's uh believed and I included a whole chapter four on all the neurology, the bio side of emotions <clears throat> and feeling, it, it's believed neurologically in the brain to reside in uh, two almond-shaped structures called the amygdala. And from there, uh, from, from, the, from the sense organs to the flesh, to the skin, to the, to the hormones, through the nerves, it reaches uh, the amygdala in the brain, and right there at, in the core of the brain, the amygdala sends out electrical circuitry all over the place, but primarily to the prefrontal lobes, that's kind of right on top of where our eyes are, right there, our forehead, and that's where critical thinking executive functioning or cognition processes everything we experience and that processing is comprehension make making sense of and that's where our emotions are made sense of that's where emotion sensation becomes perception conception and then somehow decision-making occurs, and that gets thrown into the motor parts of the brain, which are more centrally located, and it gets 
pulsed into action through the uh, the motor nerves. Pulsed into action. Oh yeah. So it goes from it goes from just kind of uh, a, what I just call the kind of the reactive brain, the amygdala, then creates feelings. I guess, which then right. create, then we can, if we want to, and if we pay attention to it in in the prefrontal cortex, we could make more sense of it. Is that what you're saying? Well, we make we make uh, intelligent sense. Yeah, intelligent. That's right. a great way to put it. And then, but then, meanwhile, it's also pulsating through us, which would eventually lead to behavior, whether the behavior is intelligent or not, cognitive, and we're aware of it or not. Exactly right. Most behavior, most thought, most um, is, is non-conscious. You, right. In the old days, maybe up until about 20, 25 years ago, we all used the word unconscious. Yeah. But again, it got thrown out because of uh, the accretions of negative uh, implication. So now we use the word non-conscious or the word tacit. All, most behavior, most thinking, and all, most emotion, by definition, emotion is non-conscious. It's a non-conscious process. Right. And in so a way, that, it's supposed to be that way, right? reaction means. Yeah. Oh, that's it. Yeah, you're just reacting because your brain doesn't have time to go consciously evaluate everything. That's right. You'd be dead or you'd be, you would have missed opportunities or you'd be overwhelmed with the data. Precisely right. Precisely right. So but the more civilized, the more intelligent, the more, uh, so to speak, evolved, the more socialized, the more self-conscious we have become and are as a group and as individuals, the more we're able to bring all these, quote-unquote, primitive, non-conscious, unconscious, tacit, reactive experiences into consciousness hmm. and then consciously understand them and make what they call informed decisions. Hmm. And so really um, this is like taming the natural man in us. Taming the natural man in us, right. And, and I guess – so that's all emotional intelligence would be is to elevate – these these um, natural responses, these natural reactions to a higher state of being. So, and, and to whatever degree we can do that, so we manage our life in a healthier way. That's right. It's a refinement. It's a refinement. All okay. great systems in human culture have talked about refinement from different perspectives. Yeah. And that's what it's about. It's refining what we already have, the givens. It's refining them and refining them and refining them. You know, ad infinitum, continuously. There's no end to it. Is and I guess as as I as I think about this, um, we we really so much of our life is carrying on emotion is is our emotional our emotional side firing without even us being aware of it how do we become more aware of our own emotion well there's another word that i use a lot but i didn't coin it but i use it in a very specific way and that word is pause pause in other words stop and think stop 
and reflect. Pause. Cool your heels. In the old days, they used to say, hey, cool your heels. (laughs) Chill. They used to say, chill. Yeah. Chill out, man. Nowadays, everything is so fast-paced. We keep going and going. It's a frenetic, nonstop society. You know, everybody's worried about their uh, computer speed. Is their mechanism fast enough? No, I want to upgrade. I want faster and fast. We can't keep up with the fastness of the electronics. Yeah. And then, even when the electronics are not near us, which is seldom, but our minds are speeding, so to speak, a mile a minute, really a million miles a minute. And that's what I talk about, the chatter of thoughts. Thoughts chatter, 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 chatter. They troll the mind, and they get into trouble. You know, idle hands are the devil's workshop. Workshop, right. Right, and those are idle thoughts. They're undirected, unruly. Hmm. If in order to grasp and get hold of, get a hold of ourselves, you know, in the old days when somebody went into what was called hysterics, they'd say, get a hold of yourself. Yeah. To get a hold of yourself, you have to chill, pause, stop, calm down, go, go more slowly. And while doing that, I guess you can be – I mean, that's physically you can stop, but then the mental side, evaluate what's happening? Right. Once, you're, once you put yourself in, in a condition, uh, materially, where you're not amidst so much external stimuli, then you can try to remodulate your mind – and help it to calm down and start think of, thinking of priorities, hierarchy, hierarchies of value. What is important? What is most important? What is least important? Hmm. I actually do talk about that in the book yeah. on the section, uh, 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 I think it's chapter six, how adults can refine their own emotional literacy or emotional intelligence. Uh, by various ways of pausing, thinking, what is most important, what is least important, what, what, what are your values? I have big, big sections on values. What are your values in life? Because, because this matters. Every, of course it matters. It's Certainly funny. It matters. But then again, we don't hear about it, right? We don't hear about it until you're going to the psychiatrist to figure out why you feel like your life's out of sync. You know what? And I don't want to be crude or harsh or brutish or insensitive, but we don't hear it, hear about it till we go to the psychiatrist or the cemetery. True. Yeah, that we do. We talk about values at funerals. We do. We do. And we should really be talking about values all the time. Hmm. By the way, how would you define value? Right, give birth to a quality of life. They give birth to ourselves as renewed human beings, as valuable. Values mean valuable. The more values we have that are good values, values with goodness, make us more valuable and add to our integrity as human beings, to ourselves and those we love, and by extension to the societies we live within. Hmm. It all starts with us. 
and it's all and it's it's that you can't separate the value from the mind from I would say the spiritual from the uh, body. It's we try to make them all different, you know, containers, but it's us. It's us. It is really, really us. It's powerful. It really is one, and it's it wants to be one. It wants to be one. It wants to regain that unity, that oneness, amidst the multiplicity. Both are good, but you must never. We must never forget the oneness, the integration hmm. that holds it together. Yeah. What would you say, Frank? We only have about a minute left. What would you? What advice would you give um, as the one thing? we can do to begin to, um, if we want to have better performance, if we want to see better outcomes in our own uh, emotion performance utilization, mm. what, what would you say is the one thing we can do today that would make a difference, other than buy the book in August? <laughs> well, um, I would say respect yourself first. And realize that you and the so-called other, other person is really you in a different place. And that you do have emotions, and they are valuable, and they are powerful. They are nuclear energy. Therefore, if it's in you and if it is your wish, Freely choose, make a decision to freely choose to develop your emotional intelligence, which I also like to call emotional literacy, by understanding your emotion sensation, your, all those different tinglies that you react with, then bring it up to perception, sort out what feelings you're feeling, are they good feelings, not good feelings, happy feelings, sad feelings, angry, envious feelings, jealousy feelings, com- competitive feelings? Then bring it a, a, a notch higher. Try to comprehend the meaning of those in the bigger context of your life and the life you have with the ones you love. And then check that against what your values are in life and then see how all of that boils down to your behavior. Mm. Beautiful stuff. Dr. Frank Ninavaji, that's his name, folks. And the book that will be coming out uh, uh, is Making Sense of Emotion, Innovating Emotional Intelligence. Plus, uh, he has other books um, as well, you know, Biomental Child Development, plus a variety of other books. Dr. Frank Ninavaji, wonderful resource. We'll have him back on the show, my friends. This is The Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Uh, interesting little research here on inducing of labor and the inducement of labor. If you are a pregnant woman and you are past your due date, well, maybe it's time to try up uh, hitting up Hawthorne's New York Pizza in Charlotte, North Carolina. According to the locals, the, lo- the restaurant's signature buffalo wing pizza has the power to induce labor. Made with buffalo sauce. Chicken and mozzarella cheese, the buffalo wing pizza, or the inducer, as patrons now call it. 
<laughs> has gained an odd reputation for sending soon-to-be moms straight to the delivery room. By the way, what a great way to go to the delivery room. Oh, yeah. That smell of garlic on your breath. pizza? Mm-hmm. My wife, I wonder if she would be interested in trying this. Let's, you know what? You need to take her to North Carolina, but be ready to deliver the baby in North Carolina. I, I'm okay with that. Maybe they could overnight the pizza, and it would still be good. You just heat it I up. Bet it, yeah. Sure. Pizza's always better when it's been sitting out for a while anyway. Absolutely, especially if you're a pregnant woman. In fact, uh, the owners of Hawthorne's chain, Michael Adams, claims that several di- uh, women have vouched for the pizza's power since the restaurant's first insistence of uh, or first instance of buffalo-induced labor. So, if you need it, it's there for you. Buffalo chicken pizza, the power to induce a baby into this life. We'll take a break, my friends. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world.